How's it going, everybody? This is Mark Stokes here. And this is Dean Scurry. And I am a traveller. And I am a countryman. Welcome to A Traveller and a Countryman Podcast. Podcast. What's your name? What's my name? Richie Smith. I come from a generation where, and I tr- I practice this on my, my younger nephew and niece, and, and it doesn't go down as, like, you know, the whole Irish humour of, like, just to say the most outrageous thing you can come into your head, just to see what kind of a reaction it get. You don't even mean it. You just want to put it together and say something outrageous just to see. Maybe to poke at people, to get people, to stimulate people to engage at a different level, you know. Come on, let's do this. You know, it's like if you want to fight with somebody. Yeah, because sometimes you're at this level here and it gets a bit stale or mundane or yeah. boring or samey, samey. Because yeah. I do that all the time, what you're talking about, like just throw something in Throw the cat amongst the pigeons for the crack. I see you do it with, like, just any time we're chatting, if, like a waiter or a waitress comes along. What's your name? And and that all, every time he does it, it always throws people. They always go, no one does that normally. So, and you're well, not, you don't do it in a flirtatious way. You do it in a, I'm, in, not looking I'm interested. Probably years ago I was looking to flirt. Yeah, and I think you flirt out of, you know, necessity or insecurity or whatever. But this one is about, I just want... I'm fascinated by people. I'm fascinated there's a person in front of me. Mm. It doesn't matter what they're doing. If, especially if they're doing a service where they're, you know, bringing me something. That fucking blows my mind. Who the fuck am I to be sitting down somewhere and have somebody else's job is to bring me something that I just ordered? That relationship is really, really interesting. Someone actually told me once, the people who get the most physical contact in their job are, are people like waiters. I'm not at that level. I'm just asking them their name. Yeah, but you're, you're, it's, it's, you're coming at it from a slightly different angle than the norm. In that moment, you know, it's like I saw it the other day. Yeah, so a waitress, their name, and she, I, she told you her name, and she walked away. But I could see her big smile on her face, and it wasn't like, it wasn't like she fancied you or was a flirtation. It was just, I didn't see that coming, you know. I find like when I first started doing kempo and I was fighting the sparring, because it was all mates and we'd be sparring. I used, to, I used to love that, that interaction with a mate on that level, you know, hitting one another, sparring. Tackling one another, challenging one another physically, but it's still we're still mates. Yeah. So we both end up lying on the ground exhausted at the end of it, but very satisfied. It's intimate, but not sexual. Definitely not sexual at that point. Oh, I, I done jujitsu for the same kind of vibe. Yeah. Because it's very intimate. You've got somebody's weight on you. Yeah. Uh, you've got, you've got your body and their body and moving. Uh, we're at episode thirteen, our latest episode, and we've invited Richie Smith. Uh, his accolades are many. I got to know him recently with Martin uh, because we were invited to get involved in the Irish Census promotion video, which Richie was asked to direct. So you direct and produce and write. Cre- this is like your creative stuff. This is the stuff you might be known for in the public eye. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, all of those things, but in different in different areas of the business or the media business, I guess, or the entertainment industry. So like I'm a director. That's what I've always been. I produce stuff, but the word producer is an umbrella over a lot of sort of roles. Um, in a movie, the main producer is the guy boots on the ground, raises the money, has to deliver the movie, watches everybody, even, even try, even pretty much controls the director to a point. Right. Um, then there's other producers within that. Some of those producers might just say, make a phone call to Daniel Day-Lewis and Daniel Day-Lewis said he'll read the script. That's producing, right? If he does the movie. So they get a credit. Then there's producers who like find a story, the story of Martin and Dino's podcast. Yeah. 
and the Traveller and a Countryman Traveller and a Countryman the documentary or the film of that <clears throat> or the film of that and that that's what I call developing producing which is where you're developing an idea and then at a certain point I would do some of that I would option books I would find stories um, but I need at a certain point when it's ripe and it's ready to be made or financed I need the, what I call the real producer to come along then and actually take the project and help me make it so then we become like a team the director and the producer. Yeah, because I've then, I've done loads of that that you're talking about, and I, um, people will call me or he's a fixer, but I try and get in the credits as coordinator or co-producer or something like that. You know, yeah. for films I've worked on, for music videos I've done, for documentaries. Yeah. So are we actually are we actually recording now, Dean? Yeah. So we're actually recording now. We're in the middle of it. We kind of had a um, a soft start, which was nice. Sometimes we start off these things going, boom, episode 13, we're here, Traveller on the Countryman podcast. But the energy was in the room to just ease in. Yeah. Ease on down the road. Uh, I'm, I, as I said, I'm a fan of 13, you know? Yeah. Like what, do you, what do you mean you're a fan of 13? I just like, I, Friday the 13th has always been very lucky for me. Okay. Which is weird because it's such a superstition that's the other way. Right. And... Uh, Anytime there's a Friday the 13th, I always cock my eye and go, okay, what's coming at me today? That'll be in interesting. It just, it's how it is. It's For me, it's uh, full moon. L well, lately, in the last couple of years, it's full moon. Yeah. Uh, because uh, I remember years ago, full moon was like, something scary is going to happen. But for me, it's something amazing is coming up. Yeah. There's an energy. There's an energy off, off that, you know. Martin, travel travellers are in the, are, I always... Assumed that travellers were quite superstitious. Yeah. How was Friday the 13th for uh, you? Very suspicious about, I wouldn't be now, genuinely I'm not suspicious about Friday the 13th. Um, I know a lot, a lot of people who are very suspicious about Friday the 13th. Uh, like a fear that something's going to happen to them or maybe their families or something like that there for one reason or another. Yeah. But I just bless my face and thank God for every day and get on with it. That's the way I, I'm not, genuinely don't fear at all about um about Friday the thirteenth, I don't have that suspicion about it or the number thirteen superstition. Number thirteen, no, no, no. The the, the uh, Friday the thirteenth, yeah, like you said, it's supposed to be one of these days where people are sort of scared of it and fear of it and superstitious about it, not knowing what's going to happen to the day. But sure, no one knows what's going to happen to the day anyway. But um, no, I've never, uh, I've never been superstitious about. I've been, as I said, I know people that do. I've been around people that are suspicious. In lots of different ways, but for myself, yeah. no. But I, I mean, thing. I mean, I don't have a massive um, experience of relationships with travelers. I have some traveler friends over the years that yeah. I made, right? But I wouldn't have really put you down as your typical traveler. No, There's something a bit more open-minded or broader vision. Yeah, that's what I take from what, our, what we, you know, our relationship yeah. so far. Chatting to you, yes. I don't know, as I said earlier on, um, in, in the superstition side of it, like there's lots of different types of superstitions. You have that home which Dean brought up there last week with uh, about, uh, Shani was saying about the magpies, is that right? One for sorrow, two for joy, uh, three for the girl, four for the boy. Uh, one of our guests, uh, Kinsley, Sean Kinsley, he was on and he was saying when he was a kid, he used to have loads of them. The magpie was one and if you didn't see, if you seen one magpie and then he didn't see another one, he couldn't sleep. He had another one where he used to touch the H on, on a wall where the, the hydrant or the hose was 
Yeah, and I'm fascinated by where where do we get them, and why do we hold on to certain ones and other ones drift off? You know, I, I find that really interesting. And I was kind of linking it uh, when we were talking to Shani about beliefs and faiths and superstitions and myths and stories. And you're in the myth story film industry. That's your career. That's where you uh, you make your bread and butter. You know. Yeah, that I mean, that's true. I mean, mostly, what I've what I've gone what, like the direction I've taken in storytelling so far has been true stories, and true untold stories. I haven't ventured into that sort of sort of mythology and superstitions and vampires, and but I do really like them. You know, my email address is zombie brain, so you know it's in the, it's the clues in the word, um, and I do love vampire movies actually a lot, and every so often there'll be a new take on the vampire genre that's just epic, you know? It was like when Blade came out, it was like no one thought about that as a, as a version of a vampire movie. And uh, so it's in my brain to sort of like, uh, to make a vampire movie, you know, within my career. That's one of the st genres I'd love to do. Where did Zombie Brain come from? Just like zombie movies and w right back in the day when email started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really far back. Like I was just, it was like, it was a free for all and there was... It, they weren't all used up, all these yeah, things. Yeah. If you try and do anything with Zombie Brain now, you'll get... My one is a uh, white browser because I have a white eyebrow. That's right, you do, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, where, does that come, where does that come from? Is that from shock or something? It's from shock, yeah. It's kind of like stress, shock. I was doing the exams when I was about 20, uh, really kind of high-end technical uh, networking, uh, computer networking exams, and I just got stressed out. And I used to go and see this fella and get a bit of counselling off him. And over the weeks when I was going, I was starting to reveal more stuff to him. Fears and insecurities and all this. And the white eyebrow just started to appear. So I feel like it's like, you know, a native uh, American Indian kind of vibe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or or when you get people, you ever see people, somebody died in the family and you get a streak of grey hair. There was a really brilliant brilliant copywriter and he only, he also was a co-owner of an advertising agency called Javelin called Connor Kennedy and Connor um when he was young was in I think an accident a car wreck or something he had and he, he it, the shock he went gray and he he had a big mane of gray hair for his entire career and he was quite a character and so well read and just remarkable copywriter and and writer uh, unfortunately he passed away a couple of years ago but um he um he had this big mane of grey hair from that, mm. that he, and a moustache actually as well. No way. Yeah, yeah. And he was known for it, you know, around in the industry, in the advertising industry. And not, a mate of mine happened the same. He was an artist named John Duffy from Ballymun and he kind of had the same. Something happened to him when he was young and the whole thing, boom, grey. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, I'm white browser. White browser. <laughs> All right, zombie brain. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to get you one, Martin. What is yours, man? Well, a nickname, like, is it? Yeah. Um, Flakes is Martin. Is my, 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 is my, my father's name was Flakes. So I'm known I'm known by everybody as Flakes is Martin. Right. Yeah, that's how I'm known now. But the way Tell Richie where your dad got Flakes from. Uh, he was off. Well, the story is that he was a young, young lad and he was sent to do uh, some messages. He came back with the wrong messages. And he came back with a box of cornflakes on the back of his bike. <laughs> so he had a, a lot of, a lot of brothers. Simple and genius. He had 11, 11 brothers. Well, there's 11 of them all together. And whatever ones was around at the time, they start jeering off him and then they put the name on him, Flakes. 
Well, Flakesy did well. Well, it was conflicts, but... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, it's like Holman Cornflakes, and then they narrowed it down to just flakes. <laughs> so he was known as Flakes then before he died. He was like four years dead, I arrest him. Uh, four. So the name carried on, Flakes is Martin. Yeah. And then say, my other brothers now, they'd be known as Flakes is Tom, Flakes is Bernie, and Fl- all it. So this, you, yeah, he's all got tired of it. It's more as a family name now than anything else. Yeah. You know what I mean? We all got done for it. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah. Would you be known? That name would be known, uh, you know, outside of the family circle. Other people would everywhere. Know. Yeah. Absolutely everywhere. Sure, people are a lot of people are only known by their nicknames now. While in the traveling community, a lot, a lot of people. There's so many, uh, so many of the one names, the same names in the traveling community. Yeah. Like for instance, Martin, Michael, say Tom, John. They're the kind of names, along with others, that would be fairly popular names, if you know what I mean, in the in the travelling community. So if you said to me, do you know uh, do you know Tom Stokes? First thing I say to you, uh, which Tom Stokes is that? Well, you might say, well, he's from so he's from such a such a part of England or Ireland or such a part of Ireland, whatever. Yeah, I think you know him. Does he have a nickname? Yeah, they call him such thing. I sure, of course, I know him. So you know them buying on by the by the nicknames, because there's so many, as I said, in the traveling community, so many of the one name, the same name, right. literally over and over and over, and it's only recently, like say the last, let's say, fifteen years or so, maybe a little bit more that travelers are using, uh, let's say, different types of names. If you know what I mean, names that you probably only hear in the settled community, like. All the young, all the young people now are calling their, their kids' names after these singers and actors. Rihanna, Mercedes, you name it. Every name they can think Golda. of. Every name they can think of now. <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's not just in the traveling community. The settled kids are doing yeah. that as well. They've got names. Uh, Nintendo Wii. <laughs> That's a great name. <laughs> well, I've never heard that one out in But the traditional names are gone. Like I'm Dean. I'm Dean William Daniel Scurry. And I remember. Uh, William comes from my grandfather, but the Daniel part I picked out and I was really proud of that. Uh, and I had to be like a saint or a religious kind of thing, you know. Yeah. I remember studying that when I was whatever age you are when you when you pick that name. I wanted Daniel. Uh, nice. Yeah, I think um I'm the fifth Richard in a for five generations. And Richard not, the fifth? Yeah, I'm Richard the fifth. <laughs> Getting, and I'm born on the fifth of what? May. So I'm a lot of fives going on. And, uh, yeah, very uh, numeric. And I'm very into numer- numerology. And the um, uh, I did this. I when I, I f- was putting on an event in Amer- in Los Angeles, and I I needed these two guys to help me with it. And they were kind of techie guys, right? Like, and I know money. I was you know. So they said it helped me with it, but they wanted to meet me first, right? And so I said okay. So I met them in there's a in Venice. There's a quite a famous cafe called the Rose Cafe. There's a car park. So I met them like at 10 o'clock at night in the car park at the Rose Cafe, which was all a bit sort of feeling a bit nefarious. But I was, you know, I was down with it. I had called it, so I'm going to do it. Yeah. Uh, so I get there and one of the, it's an older guy and a younger guy and they're a real team. And they have a big book with them, right? And they basically, they say to me, okay, what was the, what's the day in the month of your birth? And I was like, May 5th. And they went into the book. Oh, you're a... Ace of Spades, okay, you're good. We, we'll work with you. And that was it. They closed the book and we started. These were American guys? Yeah, yeah. But like, but for example, they said to me, 
because I was like, what? you need to explain a bit more to me than that. And I didn't, re- they didn't really explain it terribly well. It, they were really hooked into numerology yeah. and, and day and month sort of births and, and, and what that represented in a person's personality. Okay. And so, for example, they said to me, you're, so you're good, you're, you're strong, you're honest, you lead. Okay. And I was like, so we're good, we can trust you. So we'll work with you. Okay. And I was a bit shocked because this is LA. It's usually a lot more superficial than that. And it's like, you know what I mean? Yeah, these lads had something this was that was coming like this. Something felt... behind what, you know, it wasn't just veneer. There was a bit of depth to them. Yeah, and not something you expected to come out of them or out of that city, I suppose. They grow up in a cult or something? No, they were, these were just, they were just into this shit. And um, so they said, I said, look, give me something. I said, well, they said, look, for example, if you had said to us you were born on the 31st of December, we would just walked away. <laughs> and, and I was like, "Why?" He says, "Well, we just you can't trust people who are born on the last day of the year." And I was like, "Okay." Now I, I've looked into it a little bit, but not enough. To, was that was to, that superstition of theirs? Well, there. I think Martin, the question is how much superstition is built into the whole notion of numerology. The thing I'm obsessed with, and I collect them on my phone mostly, is 11 11s. 11 11s are 444, Jay Z's album 444. Um, mm. So uh, there's a spiritual thing associated with 444, especially waking up at 444 4, 4 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. You know what I mean? And you have, some people have reported, like, you know, if there's a death in the family or there's a, you know, something big is going to happen in their life, they'll wake up at that time in the morning. Yeah. You know, and it'll just appear on the clock. Well, yeah, I, 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 I think I might have been telling you when we were chatting that in 2019, I did a, a week of ayahuasca ceremonies in Costa Rica. Yeah. And one of the kind of predominant sort of visions was code and numbers just rotating at crazy speeds. Um, quite matrixy, like, not like the matrix that we, you know, the, the movie show with all the green and stuff, but just... It was a, there was a lot of numbers involved in what I could see in reality, which was interesting. So I've always kind of felt there's something about 11-11. I always feel like if it comes up, like if I pop my phone now and it goes 11-11, I go, oh, okay, that's good. I like that. Something good's going to happen to you, yeah? Yeah, and so, you know, I don't know what it is, but I feel it's a good thing. So um, that's not just something you drop in. Well, it is now more and more that people go, i done a week of ayahuasca. What got you to there? That just that just doesn't happen. Uh, it's but sorry, I'm just going to say for those people who don't know what ayahuasca is, um, it's a tribal medicine um, from Amazon. The it's, Amazon. It's like a two. It's like an over two thousand year old plant based medicine that the shamans, who are the spiritual sort of leaders of the of the, the me- medical spiritual leaders of the tribes of the Amazon, would have originated there and spread out into South America. To most countries in South America, and in Ireland, a kind of reference that people might understand is similar to magic mushrooms. Um, my experience of the difference between magic mushrooms and ayahuasca is magic mushrooms. Well, unlike a- a- a LSD, which is kind of synthetic, magic mushrooms when you take them, you feel like you're whatever is happening to you. It feels organic with reality and the earth, and you know you sort of like that's why. You sort of could sort of feel like you could communicate with a tree when you're tripping on magic mushrooms. Yeah. Um, what I noticed on ayahuasca is that you, you, in the ceremonies, you, you take the medicine, you lie down, you close your eyes, and you go into a whole world inside. 
Um, but I kept sitting up. There's only maybe five or six people in this. It was a very small uh, ceremonies. Um, I kept sitting up and uh, opening my eyes and checking on everybody because some people were very sick. Yeah. And uh, it was just a natural response. I, I'd sit up, look around. And then when I was happy, everybody was okay. I'd go back down into the tr into my own visions. And um, But when I would wake open my eyes, it would be a dramatic shift in the visual. And it, what I would see with my eyes open was quite like what you see on Magic Mushrooms for me. Uh, um, but when you open your eyes, the visuals are like Magic Mushrooms. And then you close them and go back in. Yeah. So I found it easy to navigate it because the, I had that experience when I was younger. So Martin, is any of this that he's talking about Ayahuasca or any of that? Have you heard of any of that before? Truth is, I haven't got a clue. But I was just honest. Have you ever heard of magic mushrooms? I've often heard of magic mushrooms. I've never delved into it, like, or even to say what are they, what are they used for? I don't know. I, what? I find that it's, I find it really, really interesting because I've talked to some traveler people about this stuff, but in general, they were like, "We haven't got a clue what you're talking about." And I would talk to my as Martin's calls us, settled friends or country friends. And this is the, the topic that we're all talking about, you know, going on spiritual journeys inside with some kind of medicine. Right. Well, I that, just find that that space is really nice because I can see Martin sitting here going, I haven't got a fucking clue what these lads are on about. Like. Well, when I was like 14, 15, 16, we didn't have any money, you know, so... You had these mushrooms, the word was, you know, amongst everybody. You got these mushrooms, if you know what they look like, you pick them, you eat them, you get a hole, you go off on this mad trip and it's like a free get out of your head for 12 hours. Yeah. So at that, in the circles I was in as kids, that was a very attractive offer. All you had to do was get your bus fare up to the mountain and you were good to go. And they were, mo by most parts, pretty amazing. But then sometimes they get quite dark as well because you start to introvert. And it is quite strong... But they are of the earth, and if you pick them and you eat them, that's what happens. I mean, that's what berserkers are, isn't it? The Vikings took them. Oh, is it? I never heard. That. I never heard that berserkers. What's that? So Bers could it? Sorry. Could it, could it be? Could it be just as dangerous as anything else? It could. Well, dangerous. The only way I've ever seen them be dangerous, apart from maybe somebody really losing. I mean, and I haven't actually seen this, but losing it and falling off a cliff or something crazy. You know, this, which, this is what I was thinking. Like at twelve years of age, going up in the mountains. Picking mushrooms and getting out, like say, is it, if I could use the word, getting out of your head with them, is it? And was there not a lot of danger involved there for a young 12-year-old? Like? Well, I wasn't 12, I was closer to 15, 16. Yeah. But that's a good jump, that's a good jump in age. Um, yeah. But um, uh, no, I mean, we just used to have the most crazy adventures on them up in the mountains. I had my bar on them uh, a couple of months ago. How was, how was that? It was great. So I went and picked them up in the mountains. Um because I find them very effective. Uh, I've done like antidepressants, but I found I found these to be a lot better, a lot more, as you're saying, natural, organic, earthy, rather than synthetic pills that are yeah. made. Uh, and you can feel the difference in your body and in your mind and in your soul and all that. So I go and pick a load of them with a couple of lads, um, brought them home, leave them in the gaff. And anybody who's going through stuff, like who's ready to, go on a journey or who's in the middle of something that they can't just break through like a depression or what, you know what I mean? That's They've hit rock bottom and they're just like, I don't know what the fuck to do with my life. Um, it's like a belt, isn't it? Coming out yeah, of nowhere. It's like, it can it's be a like a slap. bit of a smack. Yeah. Like, here, you thought that was reality. Bang. Here's a different perspective on reality. And so I gave them to me ma and I 
um, you took like a nice dose, about two and a half grams or something like that, which is a nice dose to kind of open a door into a world that's not this one. And she just lay down on the sofa, put a blanket over her, uh, things over her eyes, uh, earphones, listened to some music, and she was happy like a little child in, in the fetal position for about eight hours. Like a meditation thing, is it? Exactly like a meditation, yeah. Exactly mm. like a meditation. But she couldn't find the time or the method to get there on her own. So the mushrooms kind of hold your hand and bring you in. Yeah. And say, come on in. And, and ayahuasca, DMT, these types of things that people are talking about in, in, in the Western world in the last couple of years are, are some of those tools or methods to, to do that. Yeah. So how did you go on the ayahuasca vibe? Oh, you did ask me that originally. Uh, yeah. Where did that come from? I guess it was, uh, there was a sort of a period, I, I stopped taking magic mushrooms long, quite a long time ago because I had sort of bad experiences on them, which technically when I look back on it now would be have, would have been very therapeutic. I, I didn't suffer from depression, but when I look back yeah. on what my brain went through to manage those dark, I was addressing demons really and I didn't realise at the time. I, I called it a bad experience, but actually an ayahuasca is kind of next level of that. So I was scared to do it and that was kind of what I'm attracted to. I'm attracted to, I get excited by fear. Yeah, I suppose so. That's why I like snowboarding, and I did the fighting, and I raced motorcycles. Not just adrenaline. There's a little bit of risk, a well, little bit of fear. Well, no, I think the adrenaline is a huge part of it. Yeah, you know, but it's not just the adrenaline. No, if, if, <laughs> if it was to go right, you can do this, and you'll just get a bump of adrenaline. Uh, that's grand, but there's also I'm exploring some of my oh yeah fears. You're evolving and you're building. I think genetically, you're 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 developing more code. You're getting more. F complete as a human. So a good analogy is this podcast with me and Martin. This is exploring fears. Like, as you said, Martin is not like the typical traveller. He's much more open mm. than what would, than what we would see as the typical traveller. If there is a typical, if there is a way of saying it without offending people. Martin's a bit more open and he's exploring fears. He's sitting here in a room with two other men and we're talking about bleeding ayahuasca. Um, that. This com he has never had this conversation in his life. I guarantee you that. This is the first time he's hearing most of this information. Well, I mean, so Martin, from, just to put a perspective on it, you know, ayahuasca is one of, it's like Chinese medicine in a way. It's the old ancient medicine. So say, for example, you taught, you're back in your tribe in the Amazon. This is going back and this is the culture of it. And you think your missus is cheating on you. You would go to the shaman and he would give you ayahuasca and you would have a vision and that vision would clarify to you or help you with that. Maybe expose that she is or she isn't. So you might go to him with a problem with your feel of a pain in your body. He'll give you the ayahuasca and mother ayahuasca would pass through your body and try to fix your liver or whatever it is. So it was used from all forms of healing, not just sort of medical, psychological, sociological. It would, so it was quite a unique so is medicine. It, is it actually a herb we're talking about? It's a plant. A plant. It's a plant. And there's two, it's a combination of two plants together. Plant and a vine and yeah. they mix them together. And, and what I believe is that if because one of the things that when you do the ceremonies is they give you a mat they give you a bucket and they give you the medicine and you lie down and within 20 minutes to half an hour 
most people throw up, right? And they usually throw up this thick black sponge. It's pretty horrific, actually. They kind of call it like a purge where you just, all the stuff that's in your stomach kind of comes up. Yeah, it's like a purge. And it is it is kind of like, because you, you're already in a hyper state in terms of, you know, perception. It's almost like, it's like you're vomiting up some kind of monster out of you, right? Um, but I've actually heard recently that, in fact, that's that's when they include the bark of the plant, it causes you to vomit. And if you don't include the bark, you won't. But they include it because they want you to purge. They yeah. want that. It's part of the, the process of it. Yeah. So yeah. so getting back to what you were saying was that I was aware of ayahuasca. It was sort of trending a little bit, which means that I was investigating a little bit because it was in my you know periphery. And, and you know, it was people were talking about it with Joe Rogan and there was all that stuff was going on about ayahuasca and there was some ceremonies in LA near my house that were going on once a month and um, uh, I kind of was scared of it to be honest so I thought right I have to do this I've got to roll up my sleeves and go in and face these demons and it's going to be horrific it's going to be the longest night of my life but I'm going to do this right because I've got to face this so I went in, rolled up my sleeves, was like, I'm doing this. I'm going to do a week of these things. I had to go vegan for 10 days, which was horrific. I had to stop taking medicines and drugs and whatever and be completely pure. To be clean, yeah. Totally clean. It's kind of like when, when I went into the bush and we were going hunting, there's a five-day clean process where you have to get rid of all of the smells from the, you know, the developed wards. Otherwise, the as soon as you go in, the animals will smell you. Yeah. They'll smell the soap and the toothpaste and all this. So in that world, uh, you have to be clean. You have to be pure. You have to get rid of all of the kind of synthetic because you're going into the natural. Into, yeah. You're going in. You're going inside into the natural. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to hold on there for a second because you said the word shaman. So a word, a, a word that Martin might know that's similar to that is kind of like druid. Or witch doctor, but they have different names. So I was going to, that's the question I was going to ask. Is it um, is it some type of a religion over there or something like that that they're using? Well, <clears throat> I mean, no, the, I'm no the, expert. What's but the it, full complete meaning of all of this? Like, this is just uh, in. I think religion is the wrong word. It's like sort of well, saying that Buddhism is religion. It's it's more of a it's a way of life. It's a cultural thing. But if if if, if for instance, you, if you if you're taking a, I might call it a herb. You're saying it's a, some sort of same thing. Let's say to, right. So you're taking this. You're purifying the body. Yeah, is is that is that what it really is? is it? To me, I just picture I'm getting anyway, uh, and yeah. you're uh, you're doing all these things you said, for a week. You to clear yourself in what sense? Well, you're just, it's, uh, you're going right on a words. kind of a journey, right? So yeah, so say like okay, let's just say we all decided to to take some form of a, an organic hallucinogenic here now in this room, right? What would happen is we would just go on this crazy interactive trip together. What is going on? We may as well be in the TARDIS in this room, right? What's going on out there is like oh, just not on our radar. We're living in this world. So you, you go out of your own perception of reality. What, what's the, I don't mean to stop you from talking, right? No, what's, no, the, what's the real idea of it? What is the real idea of going there and taking this, um, is it a medicine? Yeah. It's medicine. To address. And taking this medicine. To address your, your inner demons, your issues. Um, like, for example, there was, um, there was a woman came from India and she was there. She she was having problems with her mother and her sister 
from since she was a kid. She was doing this, and I remember feeling from her when she came in because I was already a couple of ceremonies in, and when we were chatting before we did the ceremonies, I went, mm, "This woman's gonna have a rough ride." I can tell from the vibe from her, right? And she was so sick, and she had a horrendous like ten hours, like crawling around in the jungle on her hands and knees, vomiting, screaming. She thought I, I because I was close quite close to her, where I was. She thought I was some kind of monster demon trying to come out. I know what you, like you were explaining, a bad trip. A, like a bad so trip. Later on down the line, a, it might be seen as this well, is actually what, the stuff that she needs to do. Well, what happened was the next day, we would always, whoever was doing it, we'd all sit around and eat fruit. It's great crack. And uh, for breakfast, we'd all talk about the experience of the night before, what it did for us or, what, you know, what issues or whatever. That's what I mean. She, she was like, I'm out of here. This That was just like nothing I've ever experienced. She I couldn't can, handle this. Couldn't handle that at all. Like it was like, whoa, breaks on. And she left. And I was leaving four days later and she rang on that fourth day. She'd been driving around Costa Rica in shock kind of thing. But slowly realising, processing what had happened, she actually realised, actually, this has been really good for me. And she was wanted to come back and do more. So she just needed to, she just needed to go off, process what had happened which is what she did. And then she's like, no, I needed to go again. And so it's, it's, Wait, it is, you it's, like, it's like it's self-therapy, I suppose. That's what I was going to say. Is it, like a, is it like a healing ritual or something like that? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Is that the main plan of it? Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you, well, you were well, the one leading from, So I was saying that uh, people who go to it, uh, is it like um, that they have effects in their body or their minds or... Yeah, every, uh, both, everything. It's, and it's they're a sort of full on. They're sort of looking for a cleansing at the same time, is yeah. it? Yeah. Mind, body, spirit, soul, all of that type of stuff. And what you were doing was leaning into your fears and she was leaning away from them. But then later on, she realised that leaning into them is where the healing is. That's yeah. the kind of sense yeah. I got from it. Yeah. And there were some people there who had extraordinary visionary epiphanies and like one woman, I remember, she just sort of went into a star and exploded and became part of the universe and she went at the other end of the scale. She went off into this incredibly beautiful journey but she was probably... Like basically in her mind like you are saying. Yeah, well, yeah. And most likely she was already in pretty good nick mentally and physically. But it's so real that in your mind you can't this kind of world here that you can touch and feel where we're in this room fades away. It's almost like a curtain is pulled back slowly and you're shown a different perspective or a different reality. And that different reality in there, there are, there's healing and lessons and scary things and lovely things. Was there a group of people that was actually doing this? Yeah. Yeah. There was a, there was a, like a small group. This was a small Retreat of maybe, and where did this take place? In it was in, in America. It was in Costa Rica. Yeah, in the jungle. Yeah. All right. And does it take places in other parts of the world as well? It does. There's quite a few sort of like you know, let's call them Western people uh, that are like tr have trained up as shamans and are now doing ceremonies. Uh, ultimately, all you need to know is how to put the medicine together. But I stayed clear of those. I was look. I went looking for basically a woman who. All her parents and grandparents for generations had been shaman. She was Peruvian and I want and she did it at home in her own sort of house. Right. So I thought, no, that's the, that's legit. I, I know that I'm doing the, uh, that's the real deal. So I'm going after that. And I, I searched on the Internet for her and I just hit a wall and she was supposed to be in Costa Rica. So eventually I just kind of gave up and there was a, I found this guy, Eric, and um, I just decided to go to him. And over the course of the 
the time I spent there and our chats, I discovered that this woman had trained him up as a shaman. Right. And then she spent 10 years in Costa Rica training up two people as shaman and then she disappeared. So in a weird kind of way, I found her. Well, in that kind of reason, you're into numbers kind of way. Yeah, it's like this. There's a bit of uh, what people call synchronicity or whatever. This was, I didn't have to go search too far, but I had to search. And when I searched, I found something uh, that was there waiting for me. This dude who was trained up by her. Uh, um, And just on that question, you know, like I, I know um, a Peruvian woman who's coming here to this country to do similar ceremonies, similar, similar ceremonies. Um, that's a hard one to say. Similar ceremonies um, in Ireland with with people who live here because uh, because she can travel, you know, because she can come here and do it and do the medicine, do the healing, and people bring people on that journey. Right. Maybe you should try. Can it, I Martin? ask the question again? Oh, yeah. go, go, go back. Take take a step back. Say that again. I said maybe you should try that, Martin. I don't know if that's going to happen. <laughs> but, but why? But why? No, can I? This because oh. I'm lost in all this. That's why. Absolutely lost. Would that's it be good, Would it be man. fair in it? Can I ask the question? Yeah. Why do people go for this in the first place? I mean, I I, I don't. Have asked I'm not, you, I'm not an you expert. Go, but I, well, I, you know why I went right. I wanted to face my demons. It turned out as it happened. I had pretty much a very positive experience. I didn't really, even the dark stuff that I came across and some spirits that I'm t- spoken with and even Mother Ayahuasca, when I spoke to her, none of it was really scared me and and I was ready for the flight. I was ready for it to be really, have, not, have the shit knocked out of me. What, what age were you, just so for context? My early 50s. Oh, right, okay. So you'd been through your life, you know, you'd had 50 years. Yeah. 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 Uh, because I know, uh, you know, a lot of young people go and do mushrooms and they have a certain type of experience. And then, you know, 40, 50 year olds do uh, mushrooms or ayahuasca and they have a different experience. It's a huge, you've a whole value. Do you know, how, do you know however, say however, you see, the fact that you ever ex- experienced this now, right? Do you know how you, um, now this is not interrogation, right? It's only just a normal chat, right? But yeah. Do you know how you felt before you done this, Yeah. Whatever way you felt, right? Just saying. Um, when you done this, then yeah, have you have you ever gone back to your own self afterwards, or did you ever feel the way you felt before this? Say maybe just say twelve months previous or whatever many years previous. I mean, no, not any more. I mean, do you th- still was... feel like you're completely different since this? It has like, do, am I a different person? Like in a sense where like like the healing process thing on the healing side of it. I didn't get what I thought was coming because what happened was the shaman said, because I know I come from damaged background and somewhat, right? So I, I know I'm sort of damaged goods on, on a level. And I, when I worked with abused children and stuff, on, uh, I, I was able to draw them out because I knew the, I, I knew what to say because I, I come from that. And um, like, no, i sorry, when I worked up, I worked on the, with the ISPCC and I worked with Bernardo's and uh, that. So I, I, I was expecting some dark stuff to come out. But what happened, the shaman said, no, you've already managed all that in your life. You're you're good. That's why you didn't have to face it. I suppose the question was, what I was trying to ask was, do you feel, do you feel like stronger since you've, since you've done that? Yes, I do. 100%. It was like, it it just, it was the sort of final kind of cog that went click. Ah, now I get why. Because it's, it's, life is so complex, isn't it? And the spirituality comes into life, which is not tangible because you can't touch it, but you can believe in it. You can f- sometimes feel it if you're empathic. And uh, for me, what happened was 
it all sort of, it was the sort of, sort of setting of the concrete in a way. I just sort of realized, um, I could sort of see the, the code or the, I could see what was behind, what the architecture of life is what I was seeing. And so that was kind of a bit of a revelation for me. I wasn't expecting that. So I got something different and I went in looking for, and it just, I think for me personally, I'm really glad I did it. I'd equally be as cautious doing it again. You know, I'd be equally as fearful. Mm. But I think what's interesting for me, but what you're at, the question you're asking me is, are you nervous that if you did something like that, it might change you and you couldn't get uh, back to being you? No, not, not even. I I probably wouldn't even think about doing it straight up. That's being honest with you. Yeah. there. So he's at the planting the seed in your head. So we're giving you the opportunity no, to think about it. I can it. honestly tell you, I wouldn't even think about it. Yeah. That's, I'm genuinely saying well, that. By even saying that you are thinking about it because you are saying no. in your head... That's not something I no. could go into. No. But what? what's more interesting is no, why. No, it doesn't mean, Dean, because I'm talking about something, it doesn't mean I'm thinking about actually doing something. Yeah, of course. We're yeah. talking here. We're not just thinking here. We're just talking, having a chat here. So therefore, because I'm talking about it, doesn't mean I'm, I'm contemplating it. I'm absolutely not. So go back to his I question. I am saying that I would, I would genuinely, with all due respect, like I don't mean to be... I'm ignorant in saying you this. You say anything to me, man. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not uh, dissing what people do either. People have make their own choices in life. And of course, they're trying to make their choices. But me personally, I was lost in the whole thing there. I was trying to figure out what all this was about. Yeah. Because it's absolutely new to me. But I don't know. I don't think I would ever do. Uh, I would ever do like that. You don't have a curiosity about it. On um, that level. No, I, I'd, um, I'd be saying like here, for instance, look at if I'm looking for healing, I go to my local church. Right. That'd be my healing there, and get mass and receive the body of Christ. So like uh, me going into the church as a down and out. And when I go in there and get mass and the knowledge from the priests and once I receive the body of Christ, the body, the blood, the soul and the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ in the blessed holy sacrament, I am like a brand new person coming out of that church. Well, I mean, what you've just described, because I'm, I'm an ex-Catholic, I was raised Catholic. Right. right? What you've just described to me is almost identical the, from my experience with so the So that's why I have my energy, my strength. Yeah. yeah. Me, uh, me guidance, um, everything I do in line of uh, making decisions on stuff, I like to go to the church and pray about and somehow. Well, it's, it's to me, what it is, is it's all in our brain. Mm-hmm. It's just how you unlock it and your process for unlocking yeah. it is that. And I, I, yeah. I remember getting, going to confession. So I was clean to take the Eucharist. I remember all, I was yes. an altar boy for about a week and I got kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> stealing the wine, I wouldn't Good mind job. one shot. Like, it's, but well, uh, I used to steal all the money. You see money, yeah. But, but it, anyway, anyway. But but I, you know what I'm saying is like what I've. I used to be quite anti-Catholicism at a certain point in my life, but then I realized it. It's kind of all the same. And your definition of how what how you get what you need, yeah, it's the same. That's what I was saying same. earlier on, and that's why I'm not dissing what you do. Yeah, I am saying. Um, Different people have different views in life. They have different ways of settling things in their own in their own heads, if you like. Yeah. And for you, what you done was you, you're saying was a great experience. Me, I'm saying I wouldn't do that. And just maybe if it's something that I like to do, you probably wouldn't do that if you know what I'm saying. Now we're not just talking maybe about ourselves here. We could be talking about a million people at the same time. Yeah. Do you know what I mean now? Hundred percent. But. He asked the question, what are we even thinking about doing that? I said, no, I wouldn't. 
Um, ask me why I don't know. I just probably wouldn't be into that sort of ritual. But it's like, very you know similar. I mean? He's saying like the word priest and the word shaman and the word druid and the word witch doctor are very very similar. Their origins are, are you know very. There is, very but similar. maybe maybe it's. Um, I'm not saying this is the answer to everything anyway. Maybe it's um, probably sometimes maybe how we're brought up and also it might be who we come in contact with through our lives as we go along on journeys. And Absolutely. of course this man has been all over the world here, Richie Smith, yeah? Yeah. So I could be guessing something and I could be guessing wrong. I don't know, uh, of course you have met people throughout your life. Is it um, Was this something that someone presented to you or someone told you about? Or did you just take this on board yourself? Like, um, if you don't mind me asking the question, no, not at all. I mean, in hindsight, sounding very kind of spiritualized by it all, it's like it kind of came to me when I was ready for it. I realize now, in hindsight, at the time I was just exploring conversations with people. I'm interested in alternative medicine. I'm interested in functionality. Like, I love functional training, functional medicine. What I mean by functional is that. It's connected. Everything's connected. Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, in functional training, for example, if you're just doing squats or you're just doing bicep curls in isolation, you're not really training the body correctly where you're focusing in on one muscle, whereas function would, you train the whole arm, pec, delts, you know, you be you, so it's, it's about how it's all connected. Same in medicine, you know, if you take, um, if you, if you're trying to cure a problem, you might not necessarily go directly to that problem. You might look at the effects it's having on other organs or tissue or whatever in your body and actually start to fix them and work your way into the real problem. So functionality is something I'm very interested in. Um, and I remember in, when I was doing MMA training and you'd get like a groin strain or something like that and you'd go to the physio and he'd say to you, it's not your groin that the issue is with. The, the issue is with something else in your body and it's usually diagonal. Uh, to the, the pain because the, the pain in your groin is compensating for something in your knee which is compensating for something from the diagonal the angle. The neuropathways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you, he, he, uh, Matsu, the, it's, Matsu is this 2,000-year-old Japanese therapy sort of um, treatment and that in the Matsu, that's what they do is they, the whole idea is that our bodies get calcified through lifestyle, through injury, through bad posture, through whatever and the neural pathways from the brain to the muscles, specifically those individual pathways, they get clouded and messed up. And so with Matsu, they clear those. So they clear that pathway that would run. And a lot of the stuff they do is diagonal. And one man's Matsu is another man's Reiki or yoga or yeah. ayahuasca or going yeah. to the church. There, I, I find now at this stage of my life, they're all kind of similar methods to get to a, a, you know, a place to get to somewhere where you're, you feel stronger and freer. So what's this one, the Matsu? Is that something to do with the, with the Chinese as well? How they, is that how they do it and all? Yeah. yeah. I'm not as familiar with Chinese medicine except, except that um, I, I've seen some amazing results, like right. incredible results that are the opposite to what um, Western medicine was was presenting as a solution, yeah. let's just say, right? Um, but um, I came upon a Matsu because I have loads of body injuries and my back is messed up from fighting and motorcycle accidents and not with snowboard accidents. And So I've been kind of beating my body against the planet right. for my entire life and I carry injuries. So I've been managing those injuries and I do, you know, I have my guy who's 
who adjusts me and fixes me and all that. And I've got a masseuse who, who's sort of almost a physio who would work on muscle. I tried, I work, I train, I have good nutrition, except I drink probably. And it's the only week. Uh, and, uh, but I still was having problems and I got recommended to try a Matsu and I went along and of course I'm inquisitive. So what, while I was doing it, I was asking the guy. So he's explaining to me what he's doing. And actually it was sort of like, it was sort of the, again, the gel that brought all, made all the other things work. All the others would like work locally. It's like I get a massage or I get an adjustment. I'm fine for a week. And then, but then it would come back. And th with the Amatsu, it started to really, um, it was like it was helping all of those things stay, keep it fixed. Um, and and that was to do with the neuropath waves through your body, which is like, because your nervous system is your life in terms of living. If you, you kill a nerve, that part of your body will die off you. Um, and there's another, there's another, what I see it as a more aggressive version of Amatsu, which I've tried recently, it was resexant and it's called uh, myoreflex. And it works on trigger points in the body. So in other words, you say, um, in the most basic definition of it, you, you find a, mu a muscle that's part of these neuropathways. You, you go in really hard with it and press into it really hard so it hurts. So the brain goes... To I've seen them do that on horses. Yeah, yeah, do it on horses. a horse's leg locks. Yeah. And then you get the horse doctor coming in. That's what Back they do. to the witch doctors, back to the priests. Yeah. There's people out there with knowledge and they, they press the right thing or they manipulate the right thing yeah. and you get results from it. I've seen that. It was an amazing <coughs> video that the horse's leg was all locked up and your man just... Well, it's... it's um, massage the, the immune, Immunology has become really, really... I think it's a real 21st century um, approach to medicine generally. And immunology at its core basically is the body's own f system for fixing itself. So we're like a, the most perfectly designed thing, unit, a human being. And we know how to fix ourselves, our brain and our immune system. Um, they go to town. So if that's what happens when you get injured. You get a gash in your arm, like the, the gash, the, the cells in the air, you send out proteins going, alert, alert, we're hurt. And then through the process of angiogenesis, the brain floods the area with blood vessels, which brings nutrients and healing and takes away toxins and infection. And that's, you know, so the brain and the body are doing that, but they don't need any help. Yeah. To do that. They don't. They don't need pharmaceuticals. About a year ago, I nearly lost my finger in a biking accident, and I was just fascinated by the healing process yeah. and by the fact that certain parts of my body, like the, around the scar, was sensitive, and it was sensitive so because it was healing. Because then I wouldn't touch it. You know what I mean? There was pain there, so I'd say the fuck away from it. Yeah, that's what, you know what pain's I mean? there for. To let you know, like a lot of times, people taking painkillers is a bad idea because you, if you can't feel, the pain is there to warn you. And if you don't feel it, um, like I, I know of people who get cortisone in, in, or steroid injections for like, say, a herniated disc. And the only issue I have with that is that they, they're like, oh, I've no more pain, I'll get on with it. So in that painless state, the damage is still you're there. On it, so they're making it worse yeah. for the next six months and they don't, you know, so then it's worse at the end than another injection. I don't know what, and then yeah, so, it's like forgetting that something's actually wrong with them there. Well, yeah, the body's telling you it's wrong, so be careful, stay yeah. away. Yeah, that yeah. brings me on to. I'm really interested in what we put into our body in terms of medicines, in terms of food. You you were talking about diet and so on, in terms of exercise, in terms of uh, what media we consume and so on. You know, and like I grew up in a community where the main medicine was alcohol, and basically what it was it was 
painkiller. It was an emotions killer. It, Mentally it, and yeah. physically, yeah. Mental, emotions, spiritual. It would just torn all that down. We're feeling something. We're in some kind of pain. Roy, points again is poured them on top of the pain and we'd be grand. I'm really interested in in that. And like we were talking about, you know, doing mushrooms, getting a healing, but you might get a bad trip and you might fall off a cliff. But how many people have gone home and battered their partners or dri driven a car into the wall on on the alcohol that we promote every day? Uh, but we have big fears for the other types of methods, for the other Chinese medicines, Peruvian medicines, uh, whatever. Yeah, I mean, like that's I. I grew up with alcohol and alcoholism, so my rejection of that was to investigate marijuana, mushrooms, things that didn't have the same effects. When you say grew up, are you, are you a drinker yourself? Basically? No, no, I wasn't. My dad was a big drinker, typically of that of that you know men who raised kids in the sixties. Yeah, you know he'd disappear out, come back hammered. A good night, he'd be laughing, and a bad night, smash up the house. And so as a kid growing up, first textbook, first son of an alcoholic family, I sort of took on the role of father figure in the house very quickly. And uh, um, so and part of that was like, no, I can't drink. You know, and it was probably, my, I lost my dad now about 17 years ago, and I, one, of his probably, the, one of the things he would have wanted most in life was to just for me to go to the pub with him and have a pint with his son. That was the thing, but I could never give it to him because of the pain he brought into the house for all of us growing up. So I didn't even really start, like, in Ireland when I was growing up, once you could get into the pub, which was around 14, you were drinking, everybody was drinking, all the lads were trying to grow beards and look like men, men and drink. Yeah. And I was like, I'll have a my waddy. And I was like, we're not buying you a my waddy, I'll buy my own. And I, I just refused to drink till probably I was about 20, which... In those days, it was like a, I Good. hung in there for that's, quite a while. Uh, that's some kind of awareness or strength. Because I was on a similar path, you know what I mean? Both of my parents drinking. Uh, I don't think they mind me saying, I think 32 years ago this week, they've stopped drinking. But my childhood was was uh, was alcohol, in not just in my life, but in the whole community. And I had a big fear. Oh, am I going to be a fucking alcoholic here? You know what I mean? Mm. Is this destined have I got any choice in this? Is it in your DNA, you know? Yeah, is it in, yeah, it's, it's, it's so much part of the culture, it's so much part of the social pressure. Uh, is it in my fucking DNA as well? Do I have any choice whatsoever? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it's interesting because growing up for me as well, my perception of the travelling community, and I don't mean this in any derogatory no, sense, no. right, was that alcoholism was rank. I would see travellers on the street so drunk and with lumps out of them. Right. right, lumps out of their body going, Jesus, how are they even, right? And that was, as now that I'm talking about in the late 70s, right, in the early 80s. And and I had a kind of a, an interesting thing happen to me. And I'm, we're sort of, I'm sorry, I'm, t I'm taking this a little bit off That's course. Great. But, don't do it. But um, okay. um, there was a festival called Karensor Point and it was something to do with, they were going to build a nuclear station or something down in Wexford, right? And so there was a, it was a, it was a festival protest I was about 15 or something and I went, I'm going. It was my first time to go to a festival, you know, long hair and smoking joints and like, it was just like a whole other world, right? And, but what I, what I came away from the festival with was I ended up making friends with a couple of local travellers in the area, right? Uh, they were English, like Pikey, right? 
One of them was a chap called Kevil Killeen, who was an amazing man. And so they would have been a good bit older than me. He, him and his, his uncle Tony were like this. They were part of a community of travellers. It wasn't really like a halting site, more like they were just dotted around the place. Um, but they were travellers. They had goats. They had their caravan. You know, they, they lived off the land that they lived. They, you know, uh, they, they didn't do regular jobs the way, say, my dad did. Right. But they weren't the travellers that I knew from the city which felt really hardcore and harsh and, you know, alcohol just ruled, right? Yeah. And these guys were smoking weed and didn't really drink. And it, it opened my eyes to another, at the time, another kind of traveller. So I started to see... The difference in travellers. Yeah, and then I suddenly started to realise was travellers all over the country, they were very different to the travellers who lived in Dublin City. Yes. And I was I then got a job working in the back of Dublin Castle as a photographer. And there was a there was a site at the back of us, and the there was terrible violence in the in the site at the time, and the police we'd ring. There's a girl had to be beaten up, or one of the, it was a local girl to yes. the site, and we'd ring the cops, and the cops wouldn't go in. They just go, we don't want to know. It's their own problem, and so I remember seeing all that when I was a kid growing up, and then going down to Wexford, and the, I had. The, some traveller friends in there to this day if I saw them I'd hug them you know that kind yes. of way and like and Kevin went on to be to be a tattooist he used to tattoo all the bike gangs and uh, it was so it was interesting to see that level of dynamic within the travelling community yeah. for me you know and then because we have a picture in our heads you know of the homeless man or of the black man or of the traveller man you know what I mean and it's just like you know, the settled person, there's people growing up in Ballymona, Kulak and Finglas and they live a different life to people growing up in Wicklow or Wexford or British Bay, you know. And it, it, in our heads, we don't think they're all the same. Um, we, we know that people who live in different locations, people who are surrounded by concrete go on a certain way. People who are surrounded by rivers and lakes and mountains go on a different way. You know, because you're, you're more connected so to... Are you saying that um, basically the travellers that you knew in Wexford basically were different from the travellers you knew that you've seen in Dublin, basically. Completely. Yeah. Yeah, completely. But I wouldn't have known the ones in Dublin. I'd only have experienced No, this one, you know, the, said, the ones you've seen. Yeah. So basically, if you didn't know travellers from either side, Wexford or Dublin, and you heard about travellers, you might picture them all the same. It's possible, uh, uh, is it? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's... The, that's Whether it be a good picture or a bad picture. Just, yeah, just exactly. Saying. I mean, yeah, of course, if you don't get in... I'm interested in just about anything in life. I think life's amazing. And so I, I love digging into something and learning something new and finding out new things about... So I think it's true to say that of anything, it's like, oh, classical music. Well, it's just all orchestra, you know? Then you go in and you realise there's a difference between, you know, Rachmaninoff and Beethoven and Malt, you know? Yeah. And in the same way, you know... Um, if you got if you uh, what's another example? any kind of tribe let's call it okay your tribe there's there's variations in the tribe right yeah. just the same as there's in my tribe you know whatever middle aged white man tribe whatever or, it is, or right? religions or religions, martial yeah. arts yeah you know all martial arts aren't like karate or MMA no that's what's unique about humans I think you know yeah yeah but it, and also remember I was talking there about sort of the late seventies early eighties. That's a very different time to now. That's right. It's very post. Uh, that's pre-internet. Pre. That's a very different world. Um, things were things weren't spoken about. Things were. You know, there was a lot. It was communication was much more basic. You know, so maybe maybe 
maybe the world has become more intelligent now for for one reason or another. I think the access, to the you, the availability of information is phenomenal. Yeah, now. it's yeah. absolutely phenomenal, which is uh, uh, the really positive side of all that. I think, yeah. Um, because there seems to be there seems to be an, an advancement in everything uh, throughout the world. Yeah. Whether it be travellers, whether it be settled people, whether it be whether it be computers, no matter what it might be. Yeah. They've come a long way since the eighties and nineties, by the way. Yeah. Well, it's I mean, the evolution of say the travellers. The, the and you you could educate me a lot on this actually because um, uh, there's a, a film project I have uh, based in the traveling community the movie that I want to make and um, when I was spitballing it with the with my other two collaborators on that right it was like I was explaining to them at the time that when I was younger the only real problem that I saw the travelers had and it was the same problem my own family had was alcoholism right um. That was the one I saw that was the problem. And I didn't see it in, in the Wexford of it all. I only saw it in the city. Right. And I understood it somewhat because I come from a house that got smashed up on a reasonably regular basis, right? Because of alcohol. And uh, But then what I what I was hearing um, was that, you know, cocaine had entered into the travelling community. And my experience of the cocaine of it all is that when you have someone who's drunk, really drunk and you you give them cocaine so they can stay more drunk and get you there's a psychosis that comes on with that that's actually mental and I went that's a crazy world to be getting into I want to explore that to see how humanity gets through that level of psychosis you know so I so I, I we, we there's a movie that I, I'm trying to get made which is called Fighting Charity um, and and uh, I'll tell you roughly the setup of it. So you've got a set of modern times against that sort of background. You have um, a halting site with this man called Jimmy who has a family and one of his little daughters, six, seven, Charity is her name. He's sort of the king of the travellers when it comes to fighting. And she idolises him completely. So she's shadow boxing. She's like, oh, she just wants to be her dad. She idolises him, right? And of course the mother's like, don't be doing that. Do girl things and all that. And then, so there's, at the opening of the film, there's a, a a big fight, a challenge from another family, a rival family. They're the ones who are doing, stealing the drugs and they've, they've gone to that next level. Whereas Jimmy and his family are kind of more old school, wholesome in their ways, right? There's no, there's not really alcoholism and all that stuff with them. So you got this kind of two families within the traveling community. So there's a fight, and of course Jimmy wins. And on the way back, Charity is skipping along, delighted her dad wins, and she runs into the two sons of the guy who lost. And they're really jealous on and they're teasing her and they start they start a fight and they're fighting her and there's two of them and they're pinning her down and in desperation she grabs a stick and she tries to hit them but she stabs the, one of the kids in the neck and he bleeds out and he dies. This is how the movie opens up, right? And This is the opening scenes. This is the opening 10 minutes of the yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so all the women of the two travelling families get together and they just go, we have to do something here because our men are about to go on a bloodbath here. This is not going to, this has to be made right. And the, and they decide amongst them, them that she has to go. She's to be fostered into England and she has to disappear. It's the only way to sort of take the heat off this situation. So Jimmy, who loves his daughter, has to take her at six or seven down to the ferry, put her kicking and screaming onto a boat and send her off to foster in England, right? And she doesn't know what is going on. 
All she knows is she defended the honour of her dad, who she idolises. And now that very man who loves loves her, supposed to love her, is sending her away never to be seen again. So she's distraught. And she grows up in England, a very angry chick. Okay. And um, then it, the story jumps 20 years and you see her now growing up as a woman. She's in tw like 29. She's like fighter. She's tough. She's damaged goods. She's angry at everything in life. And we know it's all from that original yes. trauma, right? We have and that perspective. On why. But the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So now, so we understand, we understand why she's so angry. She mightn't understand it. No. And yeah. she's still look, look, struggling with her demons. And, and so what happens is, um, so you get to know her and you get to see all that in England. And then uh, she's expecting her foster parents over dinner. And there's a ding dong on the door. And she opens the door and it's her grandmother, Roisin, okay, who she hasn't seen in 20 years. Can I come in? And she's like, what are you doing here? This is like, she's not expecting this. And Roisin says, look, your mother's dying. Her last request is that she sees you before she passes away. Right. So she, Charity's like, get out, fuck you, this is, you know, how dare you come in back into my life like this and all that stuff goes on, right? Yes, she was angry. So she slams the door and all that. But she kind of knows inwardly she has to face, she needs she needs closure, I suppose, on on what has happened to her and her, and her real family and all that. So she eventually decides, I'll go back. And so she goes back and she does see her mother um, but it's really about a mother, a father and daughter relationship and a love, a bond that's been shattered, right, by an accident. And uh, so the story, so I'm, I mean, it, it then opens up into the movie, The real, like the second act is, there's a funeral and at the wake, somebody in the family of the son who died realises who she is and it starts a whole bloodbath between the two We families. also get to see the travelling community <laughs> and their culture through that. Through her eyes. Correct. Which she's part of, but she doesn't realise. Correct, yeah. And there's a little, there's a great character in it called Katie Jo, who's like a 13-year-old traveller girl, who's like tough as nuts, smokes cigarettes, wheels and deals. She's like, and, and she's charity. She's like a different version of charity. She's what charity would have become, become if she hadn't yeah. gone away. And oh, we better make this movie. Uh, <laughs> that was it. That so was I want like, you some point, I want you to read the script, Mark, because I want you to put your traveller filter through it. And uh, now you'll obviously, uh, if you don't mind, you'll you'll um, hopefully you'll enjoy it. Um, you you got to remember it's been it's written by people who are not travellers, yes. but have done a lot of research, and um, and also the dialogue might be probably a little bit feeling cheesy because again you're caught with a movie. Unlike a, in a documentary, people when they sit down to watch a documentary, they want to see the reality of it. That's what they want to see, right? With a movie, it's you know you're creating a sort of a, um, a sort of a, a hyper state. You want to be entertained. You want to be emotionally involved in a different way. It's a different craft. So sometimes, if you the dialogue is too too correct and too on the nose, it'll or are too um, uh, too precise to that the travel community. A lot of people around the world, even though they speak English, might not be able to understand it. Then you have to throw subtitles onto it. Yes. Um, yeah, it's so kind of like... To try and find a balance. If you, you made Siege of Jadaville, that's not how it was in actual real life. That's not the words they used. That's not the people who was there. It was different guys. It wasn't those actors. Certain things happened. Other things that you, you show didn't happen. But what you're trying to do is convey 
A story. A story. Well, on Zadaville, it was, I did a ton of research and I met all the, all the survivors, the men who were still alive. Yeah. And I tried to be as accurate that way as possible. The truth is. But it's not a documentary. Real, in, no, it's not a documentary. It's a story. And I, you know, it's the Alamo. Zadaville is a Western. You know, it's like, it's the Alamo, it's Zulu. It's a bunch of men surrounded by a big enemy. What would be the one for this then? If that's the Alamo, what's fighting charity? Yeah, can we go back to the other one for a minute, please? Yeah, that mind. Um, Has the full script been written on this now? It has. Yeah. Yeah. It has, yeah. yeah. All right. And is there a date for release or has the acting taken place? No, it's, no, we're only at that point now where we're going to start talking about actors. And, and actually, interestingly enough, talking to Dino about it because I was quite interested in, in the idea that there would be tra- real traveller people in the movie. Yes. Right? Um, as much as you can, like, it's it, it that's a great thing to say, but they still have to be able to deliver to the camera. It's like me saying, well, I'd like making a movie about uh, policemen in the world of the police and I want to use real policemen. Ha- most of most real policemen can't really act. So w- that's a reality of it. But there is, you can draw performances from people in a very kind of caricature way. Yeah. But what we talked about myself and Dino was maybe setting up some kind of an acting school for travellers yes. here in the in 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 the tra- you know in the area um, that was done after that movie City of Gods the guy who cast that set up um, a, a acting school for children oh, that, but you had to come from the favelas to to go to the school and I went there the with favelas is like the halting sites of, of Rio Sort of, yeah, a bit, yeah. bit more biblical, a bit, bigger, like. bit, bit more biblical, yeah. yeah. But um, so, so in the same way, we thought, okay, well, let's. What if we set up some kind of an acting school here that gives an opportunity to traveller kids to flex that muscle? Because this is very much the, the the muscles of of this generation now, the future, and and out of that, maybe we might find an amazing Katie Joe or an amazing character. We might not find the main guy because there's too there's too much. The, of the craft of acting needed to deliver it because the, the, like Charity and Jimmy carry the movie right so in a long shot you know you could be Jimmy and you could be absolutely amazing no way known we'd have to screen test you you know that kind of way Yeah. whereas with an actor you bring him in so it's like it's we just thought it might be an interesting part of giving something back to the community here yeah and, and also giving you're to travelers. leaving something in the community you're leaving tools behind behind rather than for example Into the West it's a traveller favourite film but it was made in this community there's not much residual left after that other than the romantic idea of it yeah you know what I mean where this would we talked about what can we leave that's fucking concrete make the film great everyone comes in it's it's it, lovely budget, great actors. But if we left something behind, if you give a man, uh, if you sh- show a man how to fish, you know what I mean? That that kind of analogy. Yeah. He'd be here, be able to feed himself for the rest of his life. Where yeah. if you just catch a fish for him and hand it to him, you'll, he'll feed well for that one night. Well, I mean, it's movies do it all the time to communities. They steal. It's a terrible thing, to, you know, but I, what, they steal what they need to make the movie and they're gone, Right. Um, what myself and Dino are talking about and what you're saying now Dino is that is like no what we do is we this helps us to maybe make a more interesting more honest movie but it also it, it, it generates a whole new world for people to work with as well they maybe these kids could start putting on their own making their own movies yeah it, we talked about this during the census was wouldn't it be cool if there was a film school here that 
teaching kids how to make films and say I came and I gave a lecture, I could pull on a load of director friends and producer friends and editing friends to say come up and give give. and talk. there is some of that but it's not connected it's like there is a guy who works in Ballymore and Jeff O'Toole and he runs drama and script writing and filmmaking but it's not connected and it's not resourced you know they're tipping around with a couple of shillings where we should be able to go can we throw 200 grand a year at this come up with a film take on 20 kids some of them are actors some of them are um, sound, some of them are video, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And you have something that a community can bring home some some uh, breads to the table themselves rather than just having the payday. Everyone gets a thousand euro. You're happy for a weekend and then that's it. It's kind of gone away. Yeah. And I think we would be serving this city better if we'd done the latter, if we built something on top of it. I think so, yeah. It's like... Uh, It'd be like baking a cake and using the natural ingredient. You see, we've um, I've seen traveler films, yeah, where they use American actors, English actors, you name it. So don't these actors have to be trained into talking and acting like travelers? Absolutely, they do. Yeah, uh, some and of them uh, straight up, some of them genuinely mix a mess of the thing. Well, I mean, it's interesting you should I've say that because um, so there's a man called Brendan Gunn. Doesn't don't get me and I'll stop you from talking. It doesn't take away the fact that they're they're actors, but it doesn't mean that they're doing the exact uh, they're actually doing the exact thing as travellers do when it comes to traveller films. Of course, they, they will. It's it really comes down to how much the director and the actor and the producer lets them explore and research the actual world. There's some movies where it's just picture do, yeah. postcard, and there's some movies where it's like really whoa. That's so. Have you seen the movie Snatch? Yeah. So have you seen um, um, Brad, Brad Pitt's portrayal yes. of a traveller in yes. that? So that's, what would you think of that performance? I think the the, the performance, the, the fighting performance, he would have fitted the bill for that. I think the, the talking performance, eh? Yeah. I, I genuinely think he made a mess of stuff. You made a mess of it. I do think so, yeah. But and why? There's probably thousands of people mightn't agree with that. A bit too much hassle. Uh, he as was well. trying too hard to be a traveller, trying yeah. way, or oh, he went over the limit completely. Yeah, he, he turned it up to no, 11 or 11 and a half. Obviously, he's an actor. I understand that he's not a traveller, he's an American actor. But he went way beyond the trying part. It's probably because he was told that by the producer or the directors, whoever was giving him the. Well, I know the story behind this, so I can tell you if you like. So there's a man called Brendan Gunn. He's a dialect um, coach. He's amazing. He's uh, he's from the north of Ireland. Yeah. Actually, looks quite like you, believe it or not. It's You're of the same DNA. It's a weird thing. I was thinking of when I was mentioning his name, but Brendan's does he he can do any form of dialect. Uh, he's just amazing. He does all the big movie stars, and, and he trained Brad for, um, for become Snatch. a traveler. Yeah, and what happened was the producers on that movie they wanted to make sure that. Um, he what he said the public the American public could understand okay the English he spoke the traveller English but when Brendan went to Brad's house in America and they sat down and they looked at travellers talking and the type the way they were talking and he could see how they really talked the thing that he took from it was it's impossible to understand you grab words here and there and he he went against the producers and he pushed that to its limit. He wanted to go, it was, like a, it was like a game with the producers that he was like, no, I'm going to put my mark on this. I'm going to actually, I'm going to talk like a traveller, oh, even faster and even 
harder to understand. Brad Pitt himself. Yeah, he wanted to do that. And he had the power to do that because he's Brad Pitt. That's right. So he walks on set and he does, I'm going to talk like this. And um, uh, Guy Ritchie goes, I love it. Brilliant. Let's shoot. And that's how that happened. So that so was his artistic kind of license. So he was setting his own rules at the same time, basically. Yeah, so lovely. Brad, yeah. So so now that didn't mean that Brendan didn't have to teach him how to talk like that. Mm. But he had to still get taught how to And it also doesn't mean like that, that that's how travellers are. But this is an act. He's acting. He's creating a world. You see how we had them films there. The um, It was, one was The Family, The Snapper, Roddy, Van, Roddy Doyle stuff. All of them films. Yeah. They were all Irish actors. Yes, mostly, yeah. Right. Yeah, but the main scenes was the Irish actors. Mm. And even better again, they were Dublin actors. So they fitted the bill in every way there. Yeah. They didn't have to practice uh, accents. They didn't have to practice culture. They knew they are Dublin, that's it. If you know what I mean. So they made, um, let's say... That's why the films became so popular, if you want to use that word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, that's the, commi- why they were like so, the commitments. Yeah, the commitments. That's why they were so great of films. Correct. Because they use, as I said earlier on, they use the right ingredients. The natural ingredients. They use the natural people for them films. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying um, in a traveller film, just go and pick every Tom, Dick and Harry for it, because that doesn't work either. Tom, I know Dick that. and Winnie. Well, well uh, Ardini. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, no, but what you what you, you the strong version is you get I think you get a Brendan Gleeson and you get him to come and live with you for six weeks and yeah. then he walks out and he's a traveler. Yes, right. Do you know what I mean? That's he absorbs because he's, he's saying, already culturally well, at an closer, advantage. He's closer to home. Let's put it that way. Yeah. He's saying dog instead of dag. Dags, yeah, dags. Martin that said, was Martin said, Brad Pitt was perfect. Sure, I couldn't even but do that one. Change with one letter. I couldn't even imitate that one. <laughs> dags, but you look like him. <laughs> <laughs> But um, no, I think, uh, I think look, I understand there hasn't been some great films about travellers, but I think they need to uh, bring it a little bit more closer to home and get, uh, if they really want a traveller film and to maybe look like, uh, like there's portrayals on, on traveller movies that has no connection with travellers, absolutely. Now ask me what one right now and it can't come to head. No, I, I if I was it. to watch films, whatever amount of movies was made in the past about travellers, I could write the, uh, maybe write a book about the about the parts that have no connection with travellers whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, and then all, and that's all, what all makes, the... in my eyes, maybe not in 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 the settled man's eyes or the or the American man or the English man. But the argument is, he's there. only come with what he sees. The argument is there, but Martin. the traveller that knows it mm-hmm. and lives it. And he sees, he's looking at that screen. He said, "Gee, what's going on here? That's not that's not uh, that's not travellers." So, um, I have a question for you, Martin. It's, yes, uh, go ahead. When I first encountered this Dino character, right, and we were doing the census thing, he was getting involved in traveller culture, you know, and and this whole project. Okay. And he was telling me about you, and he was quite excited about it. But he he said he he told me one expression that you had that I found fascinating, that I I wanted you to explain to me properly, which is he said to me that you would say to him that you would take the shame from your mouth and put it in your pocket. Yes. And I'd love to understand what that means exactly for you to, when you say that. Well, I suppose it could mean a lot of things. 
Uh, one thing I would like to think is that if um, if I'm going to be shy or ashamed about what I do, even when I'm not doing anything wrong, uh, like I'd be, let's say I'm inclined to feel embarrassed, even sitting here talking now as we speak, I would be inclined to be ashamed to do this, although it brings no shame. So in, in at that moment, I'd probably be thinking about what other people think of me, actually, in the things I do in life and things I don't do in life, the things I say and don't say. So what I'm saying here is, look, let's say nice and simple to heck with everybody. I'm just going to take the shame out of my mouth and put it in my pocket. Is that is that something that you're raised it's to not, feel? It's it's something that I would have heard a lot through the through um let's put it uh, very simply, a lot of uh, I don't know how it is in the settled community, but a lot of travellers would be very shy and they'd use the word shame, although it's not exactly shame. Uh they use the word like I'm ashamed to do this or I'm ashamed to do that or I'm not ashamed to do something. So that's a word I would say, look, hold ahead for one second. Let's get on with it. There's no point in being ashamed to do something uh, because um, because of what other people would think of what you're really doing. So that would be my word to use as, look, I'm going to take the shame on me, on me mouth and put it in my pocket. In other words, it's locked away. You have nothing to worry about. Get on and do what you're, as long as it's reasonable and uh, respectful, get on and do uh, just do what you're doing. Don't be thinking about what other people thinks about you, because if you're thinking about what other people thinks uh, thinks about you, sure you're you're as well off just hiding away completely, because uh, you'd be you'd be ashamed to speak, move, walk, talk, or whatever it might be. So it's like an inversion. It's the it's almost the antithesis of of shame. Uh, the definition. For instance, if you said to me that, like, say, um, could be anything. It could be simply anything. Uh, there's a part in a in a, in, a, in a movie there, and I said to you, "No, I'd be ashamed to do that." Then the other person step up, look at, forget about the shame. I'm going to take that part. Like that. Just I'm just using that as a, as a you know, man, as yeah. an expression kind of thing. But that could be in in any in any sense. Like for instance, if. Um, if a person asked me to, like, say, sing a song, for instance, I'd say, no, I can't sing because I'm shy to sing, but I'd use the word, no, I'm too ashamed to sing. So shame and shy so, have a similar, yeah, that, uh, that makes sense similar, to my brain. They yeah. do have a similar correspondence, if you like. Yeah. To me, they do, because that would be a word that would be used a lot in the traveling community. Uh, like, for instance... Someone doing stu- something stupid, for instance, getting into trouble or something, and you're inclined to say, look, you're only shaming yourself. You're only making a show yourself there. But the you, the word we would sort of use would be, look, you're shaming yourself. So you're bringing shame on yourself by doing something wrong, but also the word can be used even when you're doing nothing wrong. That you're, uh, It can be used for, as I said, it can be used for a million reasons. So it's like you're carrying the shame. Uh, not exactly carrying it, no. Right. No, it's not, it's not exactly carrying the shame. It's more of a word that's used than the actual effect or... Do you know what I mean now? Yeah, I do, yeah. It's a hard to... It is a good question. It's, yeah. And it's hard to explain it. Yeah, I was trying to get my head around so it. So it's, it's all about... I think it's all about what goes on in our own heads. Yeah. Because you use uh, one... You done a phrase uh, last week when we were talking... Or a couple of weeks ago when we were talking to Shani, and it was uh, away with the fairies. 
and you described it like somebody's cue, where we describe it as somebody's off the bleeding head. Yes. Yeah. So there's a different use of that phrase. So there might be a different use of shame here, because what we think of shame, say me and you, Richie, I think might be different from one what Mark well, you is saying. Was, sh- yeah, it's absolutely different because I'm just thinking of shame is where you feel you've done something wrong, or you feel bad, you feel ashamed. It's a moral sort of stance, isn't it? It, so it is. So it I, is, I, I yeah. think there's a thing Which here is, where Martin might feel um, not confident, a little bit insecure, and that some other traveller at some other point could call him out for doing this, and he wants to avoid situations like that. That's my experience from... Right. Traveller, young traveller men that they wouldn't want to be seen to do stuff with me in case down the line, for example, at a wedding, they might get called out or vexed going, see you, you fucking idiot, you were doing that thing there with Dino and, and they'll call them out on it. Right. As a kind of, uh, as a slagging thing and slagging has currency in the traveller community. For instance, right, uh, let's say, like a few weeks ago there was a big, what do you call it over here, uh, do you remember the the lads were singing, De- Dexter was singing over here, yeah? Yeah, there was a concert in the and middle of the great. So now, we were say, literally standing there watching, it was great. Um, so for instance, right, for like, the likes of D- uh, Dean turned around and said to me, uh, why, didn't you, why didn't you go up there? I'd say, no, so I'd be ashamed to. So um, the, the reality of it is, you're actually thinking about what other people would think of you going up there, like for instance, I know I could make a show myself, so I'm, I'm after shaming myself. But it's only the word, the, the word is not, um, how would you call it, it's not fully corresponding to what I'm saying, but it's a word that we use a lot in the traveller community. It's a humbling thing, isn't it? In other words, oh, I'm ashamed yeah. in my life, look, I'm after doing that kind of thing. Do you think that shame or that so, embarrassment would hold you back or hold travelling people uh, back? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Yeah, uh, it from a lot, from a lot of stuff. S- so this is very this is the in the DNA of your culture. No, we really. might have that in the in the set community also, but they, they mightn't use the word shame. They might choose the word like, nah, I'm too embarrassed or I'm too I shy. I don't have the confidence. I don't have the confidence. But yeah, but you don't generally get them using big words or long words, sorry. Yeah, but like if I, yeah, yeah, I, I, I done a thing here in Ballymun a couple of weeks ago. I'm I'm running a thing called the Ballymun Health and Fitness Festival. And we got together forty different people, guards, TDs. Um, counselors, youth workers, teachers, all this type of stuff in a room, and we uh, just asked them loads of questions because we're trying to build a thing called the Ballymun Summit. And one of the bits of feedback we got back from all of them was, in general, we kind of all lack a little bit of confidence. And this is from professional people, like, and I'm not trying to slag them off. I'm just saying this was their feedback. This is what they were saying: we're not busting out our seams with confidence. Although the the word that Martin might be using might be different, but just self belief and that thing where you just go, I'm gonna fucking just do this, and I don't give a bollocks anyway because it's gonna be good for me and it's gonna be good for me, me community. Yeah. Again, if you, uh, it's like, like tenacity, if I said yeah. to you, uh, Richard, there's such a thing there. You want to go have a shot or do it, do it, uh, whatever it might be. Just say, uh, would you have a go at that, Richard? A bit of karaoke or something, anything it could be anything, right? Yeah. It could be. A, and you say, I know, I'm ashamed. Uh, no, no. Yeah, no, I, I would, what I would say is like, no, no, no. You might choose a different word. I've, I'd be if embarrassed. You were, if you were to say to me, no, I, I'm ashamed. I this, this one I would say to you, look at, take the shame out of your mouth and put it in your pocket. And then so you now can do you're it. saying, I'm embarrassed. Yeah. I'd say to you, look at, take the embarrassment out of your mouth and put it in your pocket. I get it, yeah. So it can be used in different terms. But it's just, it's just the fact that I use that word. Mm-hmm. And many people around me would use the same word. Yeah. It doesn't mean we're actually ashamed. Like yeah. Shame is a big word, we know that. And again, can be used for lots of various reasons. 
Correct, yeah. So, okay. yeah, do, you, do you think the embarrassment the, the thing reward. or the lack of confidence thing, for example, do you think that that's throughout travel or culture or is that just something that we're, we're thinking or picking the up The lack on? of confidence? Yeah. Um, well, to be honest about it, it is, there is a, lack, a lot of lack of confidence in travellers, but I think we have it in all walks of life, do we not? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, I absolutely. think so. Definitely, yeah. Absolutely. I don't think confidence would represent. I think even uh, in, in an Irish context, like I would see Irish people as having. Uh, Terry McMahon has talked about this. Uh, I, I brought his name up earlier on about mal- malignant shame in Ireland and an inferiority complex, and it, with that becomes a lack of confidence and a bit of shame, and that that's a throwback to our history being uh, colonized by the British for bleeding a couple of hundred years. You know what I mean? The rever- I've experienced the reverse of that as well which it's not exactly the reverse but I've seen people say Irish people go to America and do incredibly well right and the reason why is because they know how to think outside the box so you have a the American crew they'll in this is when we're filming the guide specialises in doing this thing it's okay and it breaks on the day now we're all stuck right he just goes into shutdown can't figure it out that's it it's not working right an Irish person in that situation go, right, take the camera off, give it to me, I'm going to fucking put it on a, in a pram and I'm going to push it. And they think outside the box. They, so when they hit a rock in a river, they go around it. And I find that like, Irish people have that kind of quality to how they look at life yeah. a little and bit Martin as has well. That yeah. Martin has that quality. Martin has that. I remember a couple of months ago, I was going away on a holiday with my girlfriend up to Ackle Island and I was putting oil in the car and then I left the oil cap somewhere. I don't know where it was. And on the morning I was heading off and the car started to smoke and I was panicking. And I rang him going, what do you do when you lose the oil cap of the car? And he started thinking outside the box. He said, walk up to the car, pop the bonnet, stand in front of it, put your hands exactly where they would have been when you took the oil off. Yeah, close your eyes, reach down and put your hand on the oil cap. And I said, what are you talking about? And I'd done it, and I, I'm getting shivers now talking about it. <laughs> I was panicking, I was sweating. I was like going into lockdown because I had all these plans in my head, I'm going to do this. And I closed my eyes and I put my hand down and the oil cap was right there. Brilliant. There's something in that, there's some magic in that, there's some belief or confidence or understanding about, about how things work. I think thing, yeah. that was very simple, I think, because it was, I, for me it was called using the imagination. Yeah, well, using the imagination isn't... <laughs> Isn't simple. Well, when you're in a panic situation, you tend to not come up with these things as quickly as someone standing outside to go, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone's there, there to... There is that aspect. Your look, I was looking at it through all these ex- expectations and fears and I'm at to tell him, your girlfriend, we're going off here. And he was calm as anything and he just took me through step by step by step, which is a really nice, uh, really nice thing to have. I do that for other people, but I couldn't do it in that moment. Yeah. So that's kind of like uh, what you're saying. In America, people know one job and that's it. But if you ask them to go left or right of that, the the, yeah. the shit hits the fan. Well, they're well, outside their comfort zone. They're not happy I about it. I guess that's why different people have different professions. Is that right? Yeah. Like what you're doing with that computer there now and, uh, and sorting them all the bits and bobs there. Why can't do that? Not so, good. If I look at a computer, I'm going to ring Dean. He tell me close right, put your hands up the button. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah, very good. But if I look at it's a tra- elite. <laughs> if I look at a transit van and uh, I you know what I mean? I, I don't know what I'm looking at, but when you look at a, at a transit van, we went looking for caravans, uh, or transvans to convert a couple of months ago. I wanted to had it in my head, you know, during lockdown, I'm gonna get a caravan and that'll be me sorted. I'll be able to travel all over Ireland and so on. So we asked Martin for his help and he when I was ringing up places, he'd have all the questions. 
he'd have it all lined up in his head, ask him this, ask him that. When we went to meet him up at Ikea, me and Martin would go up with one of his sons and he'd be checking, he'd be checking underneath stuff or little oils or little, you know, bumpers that aren't aligned and all that. I'd be you looking at the colour and the mileage. Yeah. Basics. You're the big girl's blouse. <laughs> I resemble that remark. You do? You prick. Dean, you were saying earlier on about, that word, um, about travellers, about uh, lack of confidence, yeah? Yeah. I don't think, um, I don't think lack, lack of confidence is a, is a representation just of travellers not doing, not doing stuff. Okay. If it makes any sense? Yeah, do you think there's another? No, I think um, I think anybody can lack confidence, no matter what profession they're in. Of course, yeah. yeah. I think so. It's all part if, of if you're a singer, an actor, a producer, director, or a footballer, tennis player, no matter what you might be, if you take on a different role in life, just because you want to take that role doesn't mean you have the confidence. I think somewhere along the line, you have to build up that confidence. There's also and a thing of like, I think... It, uh, care if if you don't care what other people think, you'll have bra- you have a brass neck and you'll go out and you'll do anything. You can yeah. make a show of yourself in front of thousands of people. And you don't care and about And you that. don't give a bollocks. Like so it's very rare though to yeah. get people like that, isn't it? It is, yeah. I think it's actually a good way to do it because uh now sometimes people might dive into deep end and get themselves in trouble over it. But at the same time, if they can do it and just get everything working rolling the way they want it, sure it gives them a good sense of freedom then, doesn't it? Yeah. Because you're doing something that you like without thinking about what anyone else thinks. As long as we're not breaking the law, everything is good. I think my, what might have happened, uh, if we're, talk, if we're just talking about travellers and confidence or shame and all that, is that uh, I know from my mates, they mightn't have had all the options and opportunities that were available to other people. And in that way, they would have lacked belief in themselves. You know what I mean? Because mm. they wouldn't have been exposed to trying out 20 different things or they wouldn't have known solicitors or doctors or directors like you, you know? So they'd limit themselves to manual labour or factory jobs mm. or electricians or... But I think, like, just my knowledge of growing up and stuff, that, you know, I, I didn't go to university um, and I had a lot of mates who did and one or two of them came out and did really well. Other ones came out and just went off in an entirely different direction. Other ones basically ended up basically probably not really u- using those those years, those kind of fo- early formative years of adulthood to, to forge a career. There was multiple versions of what people did. And it's really down to the person themselves. They're uniquely their character and how they are. You know, some dropped out, some went on to become doctors, some didn't. You know? Yeah, whether or not you can afford to follow your inclination or your intuition. You know I think, what I mean? Sometimes yeah. you can and sometimes you can't. Sometimes poverty tells you, you can't go off and be that poet you want to be or be that artist. You need to, you know, go into that factory and work 10 hours a day, seven days a week. Correct. That's just the, 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 the bottom line of it. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, so are we saying, are we saying that uh, confidence is not a built-in thing, is it? Did you ever watch interviews about, um, again, I'm going back to sim- sort of the, the same thing. You watch interviews about singers there and actors there on the, on the TV, yeah? And they'd say every time they go on stage, they're nervous. So isn't that, isn't that still something like different? We're talking professionals, right? They do this job every single day. And yet when they go on stage or go for an interview or go on a television show where they're going to be sort of interviewed, yeah? They still lack that confidence all the time, don't they? Uh, even if it's if it's nervous, they'll tell, they'll tell you it's nervous. But 
Well, I think there's certain professions, right, where you can have all the, you know, all the paperwork done, all the research done. You can lock it all down. And some people deliver that line. And then some people in the creative world, they, at a certain point, now you just go live and you just have to deal with it on the fly. A bit like we're doing this now, you know, we're live, so to speak, right? So we're, yeah. we're not winging it. We're not winging it, but we are. But like we have enough experience to know, okay, we do this or do that. And I talked to a director pal of mine just earlier today and we were just talking about that going, you know, the night before the first day of a shoot, I can't sleep, right? Because even though I've done it a million times, like I'm going through all the process going, I've got to do this. What if this goes wrong? What if that goes wrong? I've got to get to sleep, you know, and I, and you nerves, you just, and, and I actually believe that if the day comes when that doesn't happen to me, I need to walk away and do something yeah. else. If, you but know, is the nerves, I is, like that edge. Yeah, that's what I was saying earlier on. Is the nerves anything to do with confidence? No, well. Oh, like where, where, where does the nervousness come from? Uh, Think about it. It's for me. It's kind of like what you were saying about leaning into fears. You know what I mean? It's it's live. It's going to be live. Yeah. So you got to deal with it on the spot. When you know, and there's many, many, many things can go wrong. And a lot of times when you're directing on the floor, at that point you're just troubleshooting. You know, you're problem. Sorry, not troubleshooting. Problem solving. You know, someone comes to you and goes, "Oh, the actress got sick, or that this has happened, or that, or we can't shoot in that location." What are we going to do? And you've so got to make so a decision you're not just on the spot. One thing, you're thinking a million things, basically. All the time, they're coming at you all the time, and you're sort of you're sort of problem solving a lot on the day. So you, everybody, through pre-productions, prepping, prepping, prepping to try and get it exactly right. Not everything works, and you can't allow for the fact that someone's car broke down, they didn't make it to set, or their kid got sick, or they, got, and so suddenly you're dealing with it's not working. The plan's not working, yes. and they come to you and go, right, it's you can't have. That's an that. interesting one. The plan's not working. What do we do? Yeah. Foy, fly, freeze, forget about it, or fix the fucking thing. Yeah, and, and that's, experience that's obviously like, helps. Yeah, experience helps. Confidence would all also help. I remember, you know, me ma and me ga teacher would have instilled a sense of confidence in me to go, you can go and do anything you want. Yeah, Richard, as I was saying, um, where, um, at what stage you like did you come in contact with you with you two, and how did you come in contact with them? Um, so I was making music videos for local Irish bands, and one of them was called the Golden Horde. I'd done a few with them, and they were I, they were just we'd done a lot of photography together, and they were a really cool band. And uh, I think you two were at that point where they were changing their whole image from more of the early Joshua Tree style albums, I don't forget it before, to Octum Baby. It was more kind of rock and roll. And um, the uh, there was more of a punk aesthetic in it. And uh, they saw that video, one of the videos I did and went, that's, we want to work with that. So they got in touch and we started talking, bantering back and forward. I got involved in, a, I gave them loads of ideas and eventually we f- fell upon an idea which became The Fly. And so then I did the fly um, and then I started a relationship with them, you know, where every so often they'd come back. I might just, my sort of style might just fit something they were sort of doing. So they would go, okay, let's get, let's sort of reach you about that. So do you know when, um, say when you're doing a music video, yeah, with likes of U2 or whatever bands you work, you have, you have worked with, um, well, they, um, are you just videoing this? Are you telling them how to go about it or are they telling you? 
how to go about it? I mean, we, there's lots of discussion beforehand and you write a treatment. So the treatment is an idea. So they might put out the, like all bands really, in a way, they, they'll send the song to various directors and say, we, we're looking for an idea. In the 90s, there was a lot of pressure on the directors to do performance-based videos because the record company wanted the band. The band is the product, so they wanted the band in the video. Right. Very, a couple of brave bands would break that rule, but that was kind of a pressure that would come come a lot, right? And um, so performance videos were became, you know, a sort of a, a sort of a, a term. So I'd come up with an idea. They liked it. We'd talk it out, make sure we're all on the same page. And then at that point, they just go, right, go. And then we go into production. Next time I see them is uh, sort of wardrobe check before we, we go and shoot them. And then once we're on set and we're shooting or on location or whatever it is, um, they pretty much have the whole idea already in their head and they just take direction. They're, they're very experienced. It's the minute they see what the setup is, they know what we're doing. Very good. You know, so you just you just work away like that. It's actually a great experience then also. It's a lot of pressure because they're yeah. a big band. That particular band are a big band so yeah. they want, they expect they want good, it they? to be good and also well, I suppose that's why they're so successful like, isn't yeah, it? That, yeah, and also like particularly with you two um, of all the bands I've worked with, they're always pushing the boundary. Like every single album I've I've been involved in working on, I I witnessed them really pushing it and pushing it. This they don't fall back on the laurels. They've never done a greatest hits. They don't. No. They're not that kind of man. Every album is like the first album for them. They want and they, to be better and, and better all the time. Like. Yeah, and they always want. They're always interested in new ideas and new angles and things. And um, so they put their expectations are high and they creatively. And sometimes they push it too far and sometimes they create amazing stuff. And so the length of time they've been together, it, it I think they're kind of remarkable that way. Very good. You know? Well, it proves that the time that they are together proves it all, doesn't it? Like? Well, look how many different shows they've done and how yeah. many different albums and the songs. It's so if, yeah. if not if not the most famous group in the world, they're, they're one of them, aren't they? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. There's no lack of confidence with them, boys. <laughs> And uh, the the film that you done, Richie, uh, the Siege of Jadaville, is that right? That's right, yeah. Yeah, did you? Uh, that was a, I actually watched that film. It was a brilliant film. You you done a great job in it. Did you ever get involved in any other films, even just the shooting or say the shoot the video and parts or like um, no um, directing? As the fellow said, a fly on the wall kind of thing. There was a sort of like a stepping stone where uh, I used to do for the networks, like Showtime, for example. I would do the promos for the show so say the Borges I'd come in and I'd have to make these three four maybe five minute long pieces that were written specifically to promote the show and I'd have to work with the actors uh, so that was kind of an interesting crossover because it meant I got to work with you know proper actors you know mainstream actors The Siege was your first film First film yeah So what was that like in terms of nerves confidence skills experience leaning into that like I mean, I tried so many times to make a movie before that that I was, and I directed for song that I was just busting at the chops to get in and do it. Um, the it's still a, it still is a learning experience. It's a it's a hundred and twenty minute story, not a three minute or a two minute or thirty second story. Yes. So it's a different craft, but it, um, but I loved it and I learned I learned a lot, and um, I had a great producer. I mean, the thing, the, what's interesting as a director um, or a producer even of, of that particular story is it kind of transcended ego. A lot of times in movies, you've got a lot of egos, a lot of cockfighting going on, right? And 
the story of those men was more important that that was told properly than any one person. It was more important than the actor, than the director, than the producer, more important than anybody. So I had that great kind of like umbrella over the whole thing. It was like, no, sorry, you can't throw your toys out of the pram because we need this to be done right. It's more important than you. Sorry, mate. And that was that actually was very interesting. It gave it a comment almost like Zen-like approach then came to the making of it. And it was, you always fell back to what's the best thing here for the story. Yeah. So it was actually your own ideas to start this whole thing off then? Just for making this I found the story, yeah. What happened was um, Declan Parr had written a book on it um, a couple of years earlier, had come and gone. And I was reading a book called Guns for Hire, which was about the history of the mercenary soldier. Uh, it started with the Pinkertons in, in Glasgow and went right through to modern day Yemen. And right in the middle of this book, it was like, it's all about mercenary soldiers. So you got to kind of know them and their history. Right in the middle of all this, there was just a paragraph in the book where th- these really badass mercenary soldiers ran into a company of Irish soldiers and got their arses kicked. And I was like, and it was over. Then they moved on. And I was like, well, I don't know. I've never seen, i never heard of this. What is this? Like, this is kind of huge, right? So I started asking around in, in here back home and I was told by the army, by the government, oh, we don't talk about Jadotville. So now I was completely hooked. And so yeah. then I found the soldiers that were still alive because they were all quite old and started basically on, basically the same journey you would go on if you were making a documentary, interviewing all these people, piecing this story together, talking to Declan, optioning his book, going to the Irish Film Board, uh, getting money to hire a writer to write a script and basically over four years, I went on this journey until eventually we had a version of the script where um, Alan Maloney came along and went, okay, I know how to make this movie. Let's go. Very good. There is an interesting story behind in Jadaville that um, I can I can share with you. It's, I was halfway through working on the script in LA and phone rings and uh, I pick it up and I go, hello, is this uh, Richie Smith? And I said, yeah. He said, this is Leo Quinlan. I believe you're making a movie about my father. And I was like, oh, fuck. This is... Uh, and I was like, yeah, yeah. And I thought I'm in trouble here, right? And he goes, no, he could tell from my tone. Yeah. He says, no, 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 it's fine. It's I'm here to help. And I was like, oh, this is gold. Like, can't believe this. He says, why? He invited me back to Waterville to where Pat Quinlan was from. And now he has a house. And so I went back and went down to Waterville. We had dinner and a bottle of wine. And after dinner, he sort of, he pulled out his father's chest, big metal box. And he opened it up. He says, I've got something for you, right? And I said, Okay. And he pulled out revolvers and schematics and various um, stuff that his father had collected from when he was at the in Congo and put in this. He says, no, that's not what I, I'm here to show you. I want to show you something else. Uh, I have the radio log. Okay, so the sidebar to this is what, what happened was when Quinlan and his men were put under house arrest, he had a radio log which he had kept of the entire battle his communications Oskelga to HQ because he thought something's going on. They're not responding in military terms to me here. We're in a big trouble here. We're in serious trouble and I'm not getting back military type responses. So he told the radio up to make a log. All of that log would have been Oskelga and Munster 60s Gelga at that, right? So he, he he had this 18-page log, so he gave it to a journalist and he said, "Will you? this is a love letter from my wife, will you please see that she gets it? And the journalist said, yeah. But um, Conor Cruz O'Brien and one of the members of the military intercepted the journalist and took the log and destroyed it. 
So no one ever saw the log. But Quinlan had made a miniature copy, a bit like, bit like in Tarantino's yeah. uh, True Romance with the wristwatch, right? Yeah. Same kind of story. He made this, uh, he made a miniature copy, which he hid on his body. And so, but when he, when he got back to Ireland and the, all the shame, the shame of it, that came with, with them being called cowards, uh, he decided he didn't want to bring the army in any more disrepute than they'd already been in because he, the army was his family, was his life. And he didn't, so he basically, he put the log into the box with everything else and no one ever saw it. So on this particular night in Waterville, probably around 2014, um, he gave me the log. And he said, this is yours. It's time that things were made right, is what he said. This is your first movie. And this dude is handing you yeah. the perfect thing for the movie. Yeah, It's just like it, this log that nobody knows that and about. I mean, the truth is it doesn't make it into the movie for a load of reasons that maybe it's another chat. But, um, but it's one of those magic it. things that yeah. can happen I in found, movies. Yeah, I found someone who could translate it and it was da- it was damning. What was written in in you know? And it was, did it give you an insight into it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, so it would have informed yeah. you during the the, the filming process. Yeah. And we shot, we shot it. We shot with um, the lead actor Jamie Dornan and one or other the radio up Conor McNeil had to learn all the Irish. Oh, so all this is filmed. And we shot it. We yeah, shot yeah, it, yeah, yeah. But it, it's on it's on the floor. It's, it's on, on the floor. That classic uh, term, but but it's on the floor for good reason because it was getting too confusing. And by the time the second act kicks in and the soldiers are being attacked, your your empathy at that point is for them and how are they going to survive it? When we cut away to the politics, it just kind of lost all its momentum. Once the battle kicks off, it's really about it really becomes about the battle because it's such a big thing. Just give us a small rundown, Rich, on uh, on uh, what the film is about, please. I know you're telling a big lot about that here. It was about. Um Tijalva takes place in 1961, September 61, over five days um, during the Congo crisis. The Congo was, Patrice Lumumba had been assassinated and the country had descended into civil war. Meanwhile, the Belgians, uh, through a company called Union Menier, were siphoning all the minerals out of the Congo. The UN had decided to take an opportunity here since they'd been formed in 49. They decided this is an opportunity for us to make a stamp in this world and show we're going to police wars. That was their agenda through a man called Dag Hammarskjöld. Dag Hammarskjöld sent Conor Cruz O'Brien to be his envoy on the ground. It's the Irish. Yeah, this is an Irish connection, but but the Irish were going there anyway as UN soldiers. Yes. And so Conor Cruz O'Brien sent 300, a company of 300 Irish soldiers into a town called Jadaville to guard from, it. From Dublin here, yeah. To, to basically protect the locals from up, civil uprisings and But and did the, the soldiers war. come from, from Dublin over to there, yeah. Well, not so much Dublin as around the country, Mullingar, Athlone. Well, yeah, were, well, and well, a lot well, of them are only really kids. All Irish soldiers, yes. So Irish soldiers. They went yeah. over there, yeah. And some of them pretended they were older than they were to get into the army. Right. So some of them were only 16. They'd never been out of the country. They were wearing woolen suits. It was a bit It was a bit Irish, you know. They went over there and the Irish were in there for the whole of the Congo crisis with, for the UN. Right. Just this incident... There was a town called Jadaville where all the minerals were, uranium, cobalt, copper, that kind of stuff. Oh, okay. The Belgians had a couple of thousand mercenary soldiers guarding the mines. Nothing to do with the civil war, just guarding the mines and protecting their interests. Okay. So did the Irish go over to make peace? Was that what, what, the was Irish that went plan? over as peacemakers? Very good. Yeah. Yes. So they, so they got these three hundred soldiers got sent with Commandant Pat Quinlan into Jadaville to protect the locals. When they went in there, the mercenary soldiers said, "Listen, take a hike." 
Yes. We don't need you. We're fine. Okay. They were interested in the minerals. You and they were, yeah, they had a different job. And, and of course, the Irish said, well, fuck you. We're, our, our orders is <laughs> you to... You don't tell us what to do. <laughs> yeah, right. Our orders is to go here. So we're going here. Yes. And within 24 hours, they were surrounded. And it was a big battle. And it took, went on for five days. And they killed, the Irish killed about 400 of the mercenary soldiers. So they had no choice. This is basically... No, no, they were... Was, was, although they went to make peace, they had no choice to fight because they were yeah. getting threatened there. Yeah. That's what happened. So when they finally agreed to a ceasefire. The key to it all was Quinlan got them to build trenches, World War One, World War Two style, and and the Merce just didn't know how to deal with that. So the Irish were dug in and couldn't. They couldn't be got out. So eventually, after days and days of radium for help and getting nothing, he eventually did agree to a ceasefire because they were out of ammunition, they were out of water, they had injured, they were just they were done, and he had to make a choice between loyalty to the army or loyalty to his men, and he chose his men. Yes. And so he agreed to a ceasefire. Uh, they were put under house arrest and finally shipped back to Ireland where they were all condemned as cowards. In fact, the, the uh, Jadaville Jack was a derogatory term for those men. Yeah. The Jadaville Jacks, yeah. But they uh, fought to the last, basically. They were fighting to the deck because they had no choice. Yes, yes, yes. And they were abandoned by their by their hierarchy, you know, and so, but they so, were involved. It was it was like the UN trying to show people we you know we have your back. We're, we're going to be the you know protectors of the world. Uh, these these young guys going over to the Congo, they hadn't got a clue what was going on. There was uh, Belgian people pulling minerals out left, right, and centre. There was mercenaries on top of that, and then when the Irish lads were their back against the wall, they went to radio silence and they couldn't get any support. So there's, there's a kind of inbuilt drama and these Irish heroes oh, it's tragic what just dig in build trenches and fight for their lives yeah yeah. I mean, it's, it's so why are they deserted and left on their own then it looked like it yeah I mean in the radio log it's actually Quinlan is calling for instructions before 2pm on the day he said please send instructions we have, we have wounded we have no ammunition we have we have no choice. Please give instructions by two o'clock. And at no two o'clock, there was radio silence. And you can see it in the log. And then at around 2.21 or something, there's a, 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 a communication comes in from HQ. Have you deserted your men? And he just lost the plot with that because that's the last thing he was going to do. So that. they were setting him up for a fall by even in suggesting that. So... It's quite incriminating when you actually read the log, yeah. yeah. Very few, no, listen, when I say very few people, I kept it very close. I'd never released it to, to the government or to the army. I kept it and it's, it's going to stay that way. Yeah, of course. You know. Um, but so, so did you feel in control of this film when you were actually making it, yeah? Uh, what I mean, you had no one telling you what to do. You were the director and the producer of all this, like. The producer would, at that point, would have been Alan Maloney. Right. And I would have been the director. So it's all pre-planned. And we were pretty much, the only time we'd really get into any kind of like altercation about what's going on is if I went off piste a little bit. But sometimes you have to do that. Like there's an element of organic process with any directing. But it was under a bond at the time because it was with Netflix. It was under a bond. So that means financiers were watching everything that you're doing every day. Oh, and if you miss a shot. So there still was pressure involved like. Huge, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We Even though miss. you were sort of telling the... These people want to do kind of thing. It was all mapped or out. Someone still watching you, basically over over like. Oh, every day. So who yeah. makes that decision then of not to use certain things like the the footage that was on the cutting room floor of Jamie Doran speaking Oscar? That would have been 
mo- that would have been a, a combination of collaboration between me, the editor, and Alan. So the editor was a woman called Alex Mackey. So you made a film about a fight in the Congo, and now you're looking at making a film about fighting charity. Another fighter, yeah. Can you see the? the is there a link there? Did I just make that link? What's going on with you? No, no, is no. Is a bit in them or what? <laughs> <laughs> Trying to imply I like fighting. <laughs> you like, you know what I mean? There's a bit of tension there. You, you like leaning into things, ayahuasca and bleeding, snowboarding and breaking your yeah. body up. Or is it just that you like to see a good challenge? Is that what it I is? I like the challenge. I think, yeah. Martin, I think you have me there. You have me nailed. Come here, um, I know you're, you're about to go in a few minutes. Could you give us a, that was the Siege of Jadoville, is that right? Correct, yeah. Right. Could you give us a small rundown of what it's like living in LA, please? Just a little rundown. I'm a big sushi fan. Quick. So I love sushi and it's the best sushi. And I have five hours do- driving door to door to go snowboarding. Yeah. And I love American cars and Americana. So I've gotten myself a nice American car and I I love I love driving. I'll what about drive. the roads themselves? Big yeah, wide the roads. roads. Are, yeah, they're good. They're not like challenging. I mean, you've got to go up into the mountains to get motorcycle racing roads, but you know, I, I'm a driver. I love driving. And over there, there's a speed limit of 55 and most places are 65. And the rule is, I'm, I'm kind of talking about California because I don't know all the states. But say, for example, in California, it's mostly 55 or 65. So basically, once you go more than 15 miles an hour over the speed limit, you can get a ticket. Right. So if it's a 55 mile an hour speed limit on the motorway or the highway, everybody's sitting at 70. If you go over 70, you go to 71, you're going to get a ticket. Right. So everybody sits at 70. It's sort of like a pseudo speed limit, so right? Just not a and so it. there's none of this like the outside lane is the fast lane and you pull in and overtake and pull in. They all just sit there. So all the lanes are the same basically. So if I come racing down the motorway at high speed, I run into this pack of fucking cars <laughs> and I've got to weave through them to get out of them and they won't get out of the way because they're like so they take this higher ground. But we're doing the max you can do. So how can In you? every lane all at once. Yeah. So yeah. you have to weave through the... F- There's no slow lane, fast lane. It's just this no. whole block of traffic that's 50 miles long and 10 lanes wide. Moving it's just doing level. 70. Yeah. There's get a o- lot of that. Get over it. Yeah. But it's tailgating and weaving is not... Like, you get in trouble for doing it. But, I mean, every, you'll, you'll definitely find, like, on a long-distance drive, just to sort of cheer yourself, or just to keep yourself fucking awake, you'll, you know... You'll see some guy comes flying through the through the pack and take off. You go after him, and then he knows you've gone after him. So the two is are kind of like way over the speed limit, belting down middle of nowhere. Oh. Then come up on a pack. I might go in front, and he'll watch me weave through. Now I'm taking the risk because I'm leading the pack. The limits, I'm leading yeah. the, the pack, if you know what I mean. Then I might back off a little bit, and he'll go past. And you can get into kind of fun games like that. So you're gonna have to give all that up when you come to. Uh over with us and make this film fighting charity you're going to have to yeah. just do the back rolls of Blade and Ballymun <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other level of adrenaline right yeah, where, yeah, where, yeah, there's yeah. No, where there's no speed limits <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting though. happy days Richie it was uh, lovely having you in thanks a lot Zombie Brian thanks for having me and the same again. You. Thank you very much, Richard, for, for joining us here this evening and uh, you, we we're going to insist that you put Brendan Gleeson in a headlock for us and uh, at least oh, yeah. Get him into the film or uh, get him onto this bleeding podcast. Yeah, it's AB well able for you. Yeah, he's a good man, right, isn't he? Tough, tough character. Thanks, lads. Thanks, Richie. Thanks, Martin. All right, horse. Episode 13. Over and out. So that's us for this episode a traveler and a countryman podcast. If you like it, let us know, share it around, and uh, we'll see you on the road. <laughs>